is yours. What are we doing here? What are we doing here? It's Red Fence! It's Red Fence. Do your homework! Hi, George. Hi, Acton. How's it going today? It's so hot here. <laughs> it's really hot here. <laughs> what a Oof. great reason to sit still and talk about serious women. Let's do that. Because we are serious women. We are serious women, and we're talking about some yes. very serious women today. We are. What did you call them? I already, I already forgot. A feminist. feminist. Feminist prophets. Feminist prophets. Because not only are they both feminists, and we'll get to why we say that, because mm-hmm. I think someone could offer a disagreement with that. Mm-hmm. And, well, both sides could, actually, mm-hmm. left and right. And much of what they write about is really prophetic. Very much so. Very prescient. So that's sort of our excuse for doing two less contemporary writers in one episode, because usually that's not our format. That's right. But the contemporariness will just manifest. It will. (laughs) (laughs) You will see why. They saw all these things coming. There literally is nothing new under the sun when it comes to women arguing about shit. (laughs) (laughs) So first things first for this episode, let's talk specifically about our political views, since a lot of this divide between, we haven't even said it, we're talking about, do your homework, between Andrea Dworkin and Phyllis Schlafly, is is political nature. Phyllis Schlafly, best known for opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment, Andrea Dworkin, best known as a committed anti-pornography feminist. So they are commonly left-right aligned that's mm-hmm. the that's the thing right so let's talk about what we think the role of government is when it comes to social policy and a little history about how we came to have those views okay so i was raised in a family that for generations on both sides was traditional like culturally conservative evangelical christian and the way that those values translated politically was that we vote republican it wasn't discussed or argued about it was just assumed it was obvious uh, my first political memory was watching the 1996 debates between Clinton and Dole. I was probably like 14 at the time. And I didn't understand any of the issues being discussed, but we were at my grandparents' house with extended family around. And I remember kind of reading the room and just understanding that Dole was wonderful and Clinton was terrible. Mm. And that it was just obvious. <laughs> but after college, I moved to St. Louis, which is a fairly big city. And I had my first real job and I was exposed to different views and saw a much greater diversity in the way that people live and in the values they hold and how those values work and make sense for them in real life. And after my first child was born, I kind of swung left with like this slightly rebellious, delayed adolescent twang to it. Mm. <laughs> like I voted for Obama and I felt thrilled <laughs> about it. It's like, I get the other side. I get why their priorities matter. But that experience of growing up conservative and then voting liberal for the first time, it was never a matter of repudiation. I was never like, oh, Republicans are selfish and backwards and evolving past them. It was a matter of addition. It was recognizing that the other side has a point, a good one, and I could vote for them, too. And that was the generational election, too, in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Because, who, uh-oh. Who was, who was Obama running against the first time? Uh, McCain? McCain. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a little bit of a generational right. thing, too, there. Oh, okay. So you could see why someone, yes, you know, young would feel... Exactly. Ex- that was successful. That was the time it was a generational switch, switch. yeah. Mm-hmm. But I never, like, really switched sides. I think I became an independent, basically, because I was convinced both Republicans and Democrats had a form of wisdom about reality that the other side lacked. 
I so think that's very true. Conservatives understand that reality has limits and boundaries that we ignore at our peril. Mm-hmm. Right? Like our bodies have limits, our budget has limits, our nation state has a border, the government has places, you know, which it shouldn't get its fingers into, right? And I think conservatives also understand the virtue of humility, that you have to receive the past as a gift and not assume that you're smarter and more enlightened and more virtuous than all of your ancestors. <laughs> G.K. Chesterton wrote that Tradition is only democracy extended through time. It may be defined as an extension of the franchise. Tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who are merely walking about. All Democrats object to men being disqualified by accident of birth. Tradition objects to their being disqualified by accident of death. Democracy tells us not to neglect a good man's opinion, even if he is our father. <laughs> and I love that. I think that's the conservative's wisdom. But you know, liberals understand the power and the possibility of transformation, right? They believe things can actually change and change for the better. Like if someone is suffering now, we can do something about that. If some group of people is being exploited, ignored, or oppressed, we can do something about it. So I think liberals understand the virtue of hope, that you have to participate in making tomorrow better than today and better is truly possible. But it depends on you acting through government to do something about it. So humility and hope, this sort of orientation towards the past and this other orientation towards the future, I think both are necessary and I'm not prepared to abandon either one. And the polarized fight between these sides in our current political climate is supremely stupid to me because I feel like it's the left hand fighting the right hand or a husband and a wife competing in a marriage. You know, It's a form of self-destruction that's blind to the greater body, the greater whole of which the parties are just this little part. So I felt really frustrated over the years because the platforms of both parties, I think they're fundamentally incoherent and unsustainable, in my opinion. I think I agree. So, I mean, I firmly believe that if either party had their way completely, they would destroy the country. They just destroy it differently. Yeah, it would be a different kind of fail. (laughs) Yes, right. The country would die a different kind of death at the hands of either party. So right now, I just vote for candidates who appear to be the least captured of, of anyone on offer. Like I look for someone who has publicly disagreed with or criticized their own party about something, anything. <laughs> and I consider that willingness to disagree with one's tribe as a mark of a true and trustworthy conscience. So I just vote for the individual now. But when it comes to like the role of government and social policy, I think my general approach is favoring subsidiarity, which is that social and political issues should be dealt with at the most immediate or local level that's consistent with the resolution. Right, like keep it small if you can. So the central authority should perform only those tasks which can't be performed at a more local level. So it has its roots in Thomas Aquinas. It precedes America's existence by many centuries. But if you translate it into American politics, that means I end up kind of favoring conservatism, right? Like leave it to the state, to the county, to the city, to the family to decide as much as possible. And only in rare or dire circumstances should like a federal top-down mandate assert itself over everyone everywhere, regardless of circumstances on the ground. I think there are times like, when that's necessary. It's all style <laughs> right, yeah, there you go. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> you know, there are times when it's necessary. I wouldn't want to rule it out completely, but I think the top-down approach can too often just be a vehicle for like a favored few to bypass persuasion with good mm. arguments, right? And just jump to coercion to achieve their vision, and that's unstable and it breeds resentment. So, I think we have to by making things by making change slow down, you have to do the work of of presenting your case and arguing with people and showing that it's a worthwhile argument. So slow, bottom-up cultural change is better than government imposition, I think, as a general rule that, you know, there may be exceptions to it, but I think that's the rule. And I was thinking, too, there's there's this parable that Jesus tells in the Gospel of Matthew called the wheat and the tares, 
And it's a story about how a farmer sows good seed in his field, and then at night when he's sleeping, an enemy comes and sows bad seeds in the field, and so they're all mixed up. And then once the seeds start sprouting, you have this mix of the wheat and the tares all together, and the servants are like, you know, hey, farmer, do you want us to go and pull out all the tares? And the sources don't do that because in the process, you're going to accidentally pull out all the good wheat too. You're just going to have to wait. And so, you know, the parable kind of gets apocalyptic and it kicks the can down the road to the last judgment and says, God is going to sift between right and wrong and that this job is kind of beyond human capacity to do well. And so there's this caution against preliminary judgment, against taking matters into your own hands and thinking that you right now have the capacity and discernment to remove all the evil in the world. Right? It's this mm. caution that if you trust yourself too much, if you judge others, if you uproot everything that you think is bad right now, you're going to destroy a lot of good in the process of doing that. And so, because you can't be precise enough, you will cause harm while trying to help. Right? But, and that caution, you know, against judgment, it also exists alongside, you know, Old Testament injunctions to care for the foreigner, the widow, and the orphan, and alongside the New Testament teaching to love your neighbors and to love your enemies. And that's like a direct mandate, though, to the person. It doesn't say that's you shall right. set up a government to do that. Right. No. No. Necessarily. That's right. That's right. It's, it's social, communal, neighborly, right? It's the person right in front of you. And so in terms of social policy, you can't legislate virtue, but I do think it's possible to create laws that incentivize and reward care and that criminalize serious harms. But we can only do that if we agree culturally on what constitutes care and what constitutes harm, right? And we really don't. We don't agree. You know, the conversations we've been having on this podcast, it's clear there are disagreements in our country about whether porn is harmful, about whether gender-affirming care is harmful, or whether it's care, right? About whether dispensing with single-sex spaces is harmful. If we can't agree on what is caring and what is harmful, on what's virtuous and what's vicious, then we can't legislate intelligently. Because law is downstream from custom and culture, and our culture is morally confused. And abortion, before all this gender woo, mm. abortion was the classic example of that issue. That's right. Yeah. Harm and care. Harm and, and care is really complicated. I mean, it is really complicated. Yeah. I mean, if it were if it were simple, we would already have settled it. That's right. That's right. Mm. How about you? So that's very interesting. Mm. I feel enlightened. <laughs> I was raised as a liberal democrat and I've always voted that way Mm -hmm. although I'm looking forward to voting in the Republican presidential primary because Mm. here in Virginia we don't register by party which I think is should be everywhere Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as I learned it the Democratic Party and I just want to say that you have to say the Democratic Party Democrat Party is actually a subtle term of denigration I learned this somewhere I'll have to find it for the show notes and I wish they'd teach people that because (laughs) if people are doing it on purpose they should stop and if people aren't doing it on purpose what a shame So the Democratic Party was about protecting working class people from capitalist exploitation, Mm -hmm. protecting minority electorates of all types against the temptations of a cultural majority. Mm. So we could live in a Christian country, but freedom of worship is guaranteed. You know, those kinds of things. We could live in a majority white country, but racial segregation was outlawed. Mm -hmm. I believe then, and I still do in a social safety net, I think a nation as rich as ours should provide healthcare and education to all its citizens because we can, because it's beneficial to everyone, and because it's virtuous. Mm-hmm. Salus populi suprema lex, the health of the people should be the highest law. Mm-hmm. This is a phrase that Curtis Yarvin throws around. I'm not going to go into a segue about who he is, but show notes. <laughs> and I like the way he thinks about this issue, even though he is he lives in that sort of like 
but I call it the Gedanken experiment, world of politics, where he thinks about it. It's not, you don't have to take it literally to take it seriously. He's a great writer, he's a great thinker. He's really into this idea that the government should promote general well-being. You can't measure the success of a country without looking at its people. And if you take that attitude towards our country now, you know, things are pretty sad. We have an epidemic of fatherlessness, we're all fat, like the military can't find like anyone, like it's just like 75% of youngsters don't qualify for the military because of this, that, the other. I mean, it's, oh, it's wow. desperate. I mean, like, things are yeah. not great. The from mental health crisis. Mental health yeah. crisis. Economic inequality fosters a lot of resentment. All the cultural issues we're arguing about, which don't mm-hmm. even really make sense to argue about because they're, like, invented problems. Like, this idea that you can, like, I have to say that a man is a woman or that, you know, children are in the wrong body. Like, all this mm-hmm. stuff is, like, not real. Mm-hmm. So neither party is really good at promoting general well-being the big you know what we used to call bread and butter issues oh, right. you know yeah we're, we've lost the plot utterly and i think that's on yeah. both sides mm-hmm. um both parties are basically captured by ideologues of one sort or another who refuse to test the foundations of their policies against reality yeah. for example it is not realistic in a country of over 300 million people for a serious conservative party to say let's outlaw all abortion whether it's elective terminations or missed abortions that's a medical term people Mm-hmm. So elective or missed abortions in early pregnancy or compassionate inductions in late stage pregnancy loss. Yeah. Let's outlaw all this because any interference ends the contingent life of a human being and that's wrong. That's not policy. No. It's not sensical. You can't operate like that. You can't operate that on the scale you would need to operate, but you can't even operate that in a, in a room with a person. Right. You just can't, you can't. do that. Yeah. And the harm that this kind of policy causes, abortion just being an example, yeah. I'll give... I'll, I'll attack the left in a second, (laughs) is in direct proportion to its willingness to ignore reality or the facts on the ground. And so, equal but opposite situation of the left, it is insane to argue that the next frontier of civil rights involves interfering in the natural pubertal development of children after encouraging them to believe that any person can be either sex. As it is insane to allow men into women's spaces, whether those spaces be bathrooms, gyms, hospital wards, sports leagues, prisons. This is the party that celebrates the promotion of a black woman to the Supreme Court of the United States who cannot define under oath what a woman is. (laughs) Not because she doesn't know, but because her party demands that she not speak this truth. It's like a shibboleth. Yeah. She literally had to lie about the obvious reality of sex to get one of the most prestigious jobs in the world. This bullshit makes a mockery of our republic. It's pathetic. And in some ways, I'm ashamed to have been such a loyal Democrat Because I always believed that we were the party whose policies were reality-based, compassionate and reality-based. I was always in the, it was, this is the, this is a stereotype, but in my sort of young, naive days, it was, oh, conservatives are blinded by their faith and religion. They're blinded by dogma. Democrats actually are willing to go out into the world and see what works. Ah. But not anymore. (laughs) Not anymore. So it's not really my party in that way. Compassion has turned to this demonic obsession with removing oppression. Yeah. Even if the source of that so-called oppression is reality itself. Mm. There's no more talk of helping the economic underdog. There's no more focus on what's best for the majority. It's this obsessive, divisive, and harmful ideology of victimhood and helplessness. And you can't argue about it. I mean, do you know Arlo Guthrie, the famous expression, I'm not a member of an organized political party, I'm a Democrat? (laughs) No, joke you know two jews three opinions it's like you know five democrats 40 ideas 40 different ideas like 
the left was always divided amongst itself. That was the sort of classic frustration of being on the yeah. left. And but that is its nature. Is that you had it's about yes, all the differences. It's about all the differences. Like how should we progress? This firm belief in progress making it what's a good metaphor? Sort of like a churning stew of various ideas. Okay. And that's not happening anymore. The party is mm. captured by these insane radicals and they are the people who say you're either with us or you're a fascist. I think I say that later in this too. So I kind of mm. see myself as politically homeless because I'm not going to vote for a Republican who's be like, you know, abortion is always wrong. Like, I'm not going to vote for that person because I think that's harmful. Yeah. And I don't even think that represents the majority will of most people. It I doesn't. mean, we've seen in Kansas, they have this they have this thing in there. They have a some sort of mitigation against outlawing abortion in their constitution. And, you know, once Roe fell, they were like, oh, we can fix this now. And people were like, mm-mm. Because they want to live in a state of compromise. They just want that's it right. settled. Yeah. And it's settled. It's in their constitution. And, yes. and that's Kansas. Right. This is the, the, the state right. that, um, what's his name? Thomas Frank, I want to say, wrote the book, What's the Matter with Kansas? Which people like me, that book was like my Bible. It was like, yeah, why are all these conservatives voting against their own economic interests? I mean, that was the, that was the creed. That was the credo of my 20s, you know, yeah. democratic belief in my party was better. Yeah, like, why are these people voting for low taxes when it's really, like, they're voting against getting, you know, government helping people more like them? It was, like, uh-huh. the complete argument. And, you know, times change. Kansas also passed the Women's Bill of Rights. Interesting. I might move there, but my husband's like, no. I feel politically homeless, but I will say I feel like Biden has been a very successful president, mostly because he's an insider. He has a lot of relationships. That's how this stuff works. He is not, by nature, a radical he has been misled on the gender woo mm-hmm. because he's old. Yeah. He's too old to run again, speaking yes, of Yes, he is too and, old. And we would be set up as a party if he had picked someone worthwhile as his vice president. I mean, he has to run because Kamala Harris is like a waste of space. Mm-hmm. I mean, she would lose to Trump even if Trump were in jail. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not kidding. They, just, they need to pick somebody young and new. They need to pick somebody who can... Sp- Speak coherently. I mean, she's <laughs> vacuous. I mean, have you ever heard her? Have you ever tried to listen to her? You know, not since she has the debates staff. ages ago. She has staff. I mean, my God, like, I blame part of my problems. Like, if I had staff, I mean, I'd be organized. She has staff, but she can't even, like, put together a coherent speech. <laughs> and she was only chosen, let's be frank, because she checked the sex and race boxes. Mm-hmm. It's like affirmative action president, like, politics. It's, it's crap. Can't do better than that. So, and we don't even talk about it. As a Democrat, you're not allowed to say that because you know you're racist, you're fascist, you're sexist, whatever. Okay, <laughs> but here you come pre-canceled. So I, I'm so I'm like whatever. yeah exactly <laughs> pre-canceled. I, I feel like we can't even talk about what decisions we would make we would make politically because all our choices are terrible. They are all terrible. So it's like yeah, uh, yeah. This this yeah true confessions here. This most recent sort of local election. Because I feel like the choices are bad local, too. But it was the first time in years that I was like, I'm not I'm not voting this time. I just didn't vote. I felt well, so can... bad because you were, like, at the precinct, like, you know, the, the, the process. Right. But see, the, this is the trick to that. of the precinct. I've you learned know, this now because I, just, I work I couldn't with... do it. I couldn't do it. It's so like, you go and you just undervote. The reason to go is because undervote? It, what is that? it means don't vote for all the offices. You can vote a blank ballot. Because, you really? know, we okay. have it so... That you vote is public information. That's okay. how all the parties know who to canvas. How you vote, obviously, secret ballot, right? 
So I go, to, I vote because I, I want to keep myself active, but I no longer feel obligated to vote for all the offices on the ballot. So you just leave things blank. Uh-huh. Like, I, I can't I, stand I don't want people. any of these people. And I don't do write-ins because it creates more work for the people I work with. Okay. So I didn't like, know that. Yeah. So I won't do that, but I <laughs> okay. will leave offices blank. That's the solution to, okay. I don't know who to vote for, but I want to... Because I, I do understand the sense of, like, you should go, you should participate, you should care, but, but you know, staying home is not the same thing as turning in a blank ballot. Like, one could turn in a blank ballot as a way of saying, all right. these choices are total And crap. a lot of people do write. But I am well, a voter, write, and like, I care. They'll write Mickey Mouse, or Jesus Christ, or... Okay, okay. all right, what, because... Or Shakespeare, or whatever. As their way of saying... As their way of saying, this is... I, don't, I object, yeah. Okay. All right, I'll object that way in the future if, if I need to, but hopefully there'll be some better choices. <laughs> in hopefully the there will be some better choices, and I won't just stay home. I don't I don't know what we're gonna do in twenty twenty four. I feel like Americans are collectively just not even gonna show up at all if it's Trump <laughs> Biden again. I feel like right? people are just gonna be like cancel this election. Yeah. Anyway, but we digress. Yes. Do you want to tell us what text we're reading? We're talking know. about today. So for this discussion, we read Feminist Fantasies, a collection of columns and essays by Phyllis Schlafly, published in 2003, and Last Days at Hot Slit, a reader of Andrew Dworkin's many types of work, including speeches, essays, letters, book chapters, and novel extracts, and that was just published um, in 2023. And both of these women were very prolific writers and active campaigners for their quite different causes. Um, They're also contemporaries in a way. Dworkin was born much later, 1946, to Schlafly's 1924. But because she was a precocious writer and activist, and Schlafly only became active later in her life, their periods of activities significantly overlap. So we're going to do this by theme, I guess, because that seems more to make most sense. We're going to talk about what are they fighting for. We're going to lay out some of their base positions and then dig into some of the more details in the next section. All right. Both Schlafly and Dorkin want women to be free and have agency in their lives. They want women to be free from fear, from rape, from abuse, and from the objectification that pornography inevitably promotes. And they want a society that circumscribes and punishes men who do bad things to women. Amen. So at a basic level, they agree there. But if you look at their lives, their experiences set them on totally different trajectories with different paths about how this freedom and safety should be achieved. Schlafly was married to her husband, Fred, for 44 years, and they had what she called a happy intellectual partnership. They had six children, and after raising them, she began her political career, and she went to law school after age 50. Which... I think she was in her, like, past her mid-50s. I think she oh, was, really? like, almost 58, I think, when she got her degree. That's amazing. I, I'm so inspired by that. That could <laughs> I think be wrong. great. <laughs> um, and she was a highly successful campaigner for the traditional family and for the privileges of married women and mothers. So she had a very positive experience of marriage and family, of having children, and having a public career. She did the Pelosi. She did. But, I mean, I guess we have to call it, we have to say Pelosi did the Schlafly. That's because, right. I mean, that's right. first. Yeah, the Catholic who has all the kids. And, and she then, gets, yeah. And then, then you have a career And after. as a conservative, she gets no credit for that being uh, exemplar for women. That's Isn't right. that interesting? It is. It is. That's right. And Dworkin, on the other hand, was sexually abused as a young child and then again as a young woman while in jail for anti-Vietnam War protesting. She later moved to the Netherlands and married a Dutch anarchist who turned out to be extremely abusive. He punched her, kicked her, burned her with cigarettes, raped her, and beat her unconscious many times. And after she left him, he stalked her and persecuted her. And she feared him till her dying day. Like, she never got over that. Um, But after she left him, she was dirt poor, homeless, terrified, in a foreign country... And she had to prostitute herself to survive. 
she did eventually make her way back to the States and she began to write. But this is the life experience that she was writing from. And she went on to become a very outspoken feminist activist. She wrote many books. She was very articulate. And I think her speeches are brilliant and moving. She's an amazing she writer. She really is. Um, so Schlafly comes to the question of women's flourishing from the joy and stability of having flourished, right? Of having been married to a good man, of raising sons and daughters, being a Catholic, living amongst other traditional families in which certain virtues were encouraged and assumed. So Schlafly sees family as a foundation and a solution to the many problems that women face. But Dworkin, on the other hand, comes to the question of women's flourishing from the abject powerlessness of being a battered wife. Right, of being a prostitute from sheer desperation because her family back home refused to help her or protect her from this man. So to Dworkin, family and traditional male authority are part of the problem rather than the solution. You know, when she was a child, a man molested her. As a young woman, male prison guards abused her. Her husband nearly killed her. Her father did not adequately protect her. So she's much more pessimistic. And while she acknowledges that there are some good men in the world, they're definitely the exception in her mind. Like, so exceptional, in fact, that she seldom even mentions them. Like, she paints men with a very broad brush and generalizes about their power and sexism and abusiveness intentionally without caveats, which kind of drove me nuts because I'm all about the caveats. Right. But I just had to know, like, this is just the way she's got to do it because of what happened to her. So once I kind of got that, like, okay, reading her is going to be like this, <sighs> I was right. able to relax a bit. But you just right. have to be prepared for that, that she doesn't make caveats. Um, she said in an interview that things happened to me in my own life that were incomprehensible. And so she wrote her first book, Woman Hating, because she was convinced that what happened to her wasn't personal. It was historical. It was part of this larger pattern of patriarchy, she thought. So good men don't factor into Dworkin's set of solutions because she thinks that there will never be enough of them, right? They're anomalies. But, but good men are assumed by Schlafly as necessary for the flourishing of women. And it's kind of funny not funny like that Schlafly would make a point later on in her career like before beginning a speech or a debate she'd say I just want to thank my husband for letting me come here today well that was a dig at the feminist oh totally like and of course she would you know she'd say that you know to stick it to the lips right to get their hackles up but it's also a nod to her deep belief that her success was never at the expense of the most important man in her life right like it wasn't in spite of him or against him or in competition with him that she flourished it was always in cooperation with him it was the fruit of reciprocal respect. And so, and that reveals her fundamental assumption that the family, though not without problems, is good. So to come to this question of like, what were each of these women fighting for? I'd say Schlafly was fighting to preserve heterosexual marriage and family as a source of love and stability, as the teacher and passer on of virtue, and as the time-tested way that typical men and women have forged for compromise, right? Like just for getting along in the midst of their ineradicable differences. And she definitely saw the traditional family as being of a piece with Judeo-Christianity. There's this new book that's just come out called uh, The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes by Nancy Piercy. And in that book, she basically backs up Schlafly's ideas with sociological research. Piercy shows that not nominal, but like authentically committed and practicing Christian men test out as the most loving and most engaged husbands and fathers with the lowest divorce rates and lowest rates of domestic violence of any group in America. Mm. And so Piercy says that the sociological evidence reveals that genuine religious conversion has the power to overcome toxic behavior in men, that a, that a practiced faith is synonymous with virtue and that that is good for women. So akin to Schlafly, she's saying that there's a pre-political way to foster virtue right, and diminish toxic masculinity. Mm. So Schlafly but Schlafly saw most feminists as working to destroy the family, which is cutting off your nose to spite your face. She thought that was a totally self-defeating project. 
So Dworkin, on the other hand, she was fighting for something more abstract, I think, something that didn't exist yet, or at least she didn't think it existed. I kind of think it does. She did not. She was fighting for women to be perceived in a different light, to be seen as themselves in their own right, as full and intelligent human beings in a non-objectified, non-sexualized, non-submissive way. So Dworkin was fighting pornography, fighting traditional marriage, rape culture, and institutional sexism because she wanted women to be seen in all their true glory. Because if they were seen as true human beings equal to men, then they wouldn't be treated like whores. For that vision to be achievable, she thought that a whole range of things had to be torn down first. So she advocated for revolution. I, I think that's how she saw her writing. Like She's like, I'm writing for revolution. That's the point. I don't exactly know what she means by revolution. But no, a lot of it wanted, is in the 60s. I mean, again, exactly. a lot of it took, takes place in the lens of, mm. you know, the, between civil rights and the Vietnam War, it really, you really do get this that's impression the that the state is actively thwarting equality and, and flourishing of people. Okay. It's sending men to war. You know, it's saying, you know, these people are better than these other people. Okay. It's, it's promoting policies that we now feel, most people feel are not right. Okay. Or unjust. It's so, punishing homosexuals. Right. It's all, it's all of that. So I guess that word revolution, it just lands very differently now compared to then because of what the government is like now. Yes. Okay. Okay. But I mean, also, like, it's it's that stuff plus, you know, capitalism is evil. Which, uh-huh. you know, that's why people don't talk about revolution anymore, because both parties are incredibly yes. captured. Right, I mean, like, they're you all look at the gay pride parade, and it's like, right. you know, Deloitte, you know, yeah. or whatever, you know, it's like that's right. corporate gay pride. Von sold, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, all in all, I think, you know, Schlafly wanted to preserve and protect, and Dworkin wanted to revolutionize. I think that was, that was a beautiful layout. <laughs> I loved reading these women together because they both agree on some of the fundamental problems and neither of them is thinks that you could just wave your hands or do one thing and solve it. That's right. They they both provoke the same question. And this is why even though they're writing about times that have passed, it's still very, very contemporary. How does a government founded on principles of liberty deal with the fact that live and let live produces obvious harms? So Schlafly looks at this problem from the assumption that the family is functional, and not just from a point of view of physical safety from abuse, battery, or rape, but also safe in an intellectual way. One of the most striking aspects of Dworkin's youth is her account of how her mother viewed her quite obviously intellectually precocious daughter. She just simply didn't understand what she was dealing with. This happens, I I hear, in families, that you just, you make a baby that came from Mars, (laughs) from the relative view of your... It offended her. Her yes. and uh, Dworkin's mother was offended about how curious, by how curious and capable and different her daughter was. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that was the time, mm. because she probably knew that, you know, what would await kind of that attitude towards mm. life, towards the world. But also maybe she like didn't know. Maybe mm. she didn't have enough experience of what that really meant for her daughter to have this intellect. And so these two trajectories of being intellectually different and being subject to male abuse, obviously based on her sex, let's just get that clear, mm-hmm. coincided early and then unfortunately very often in her life. Yeah. I mean, not many nine-year-olds go off to the movies with a copy of Baudelaire's poetry in their pocket. <laughs> I mean, she was just a That's precocious right. child. Yeah. And God help us, hopefully not many of them end up being sexually assaulted while they do so. Mm-hmm. This episode is so tragic to me especially because it shows how dangerous it is for girls to be intellectually precocious. She was essentially punished for being curious about the world. Her curiosity was met point blank with abuse. Mm. 
And this problem, this sexism, became a pattern as early as high school for her. She had a manipulative teacher that realized they could convince a young Andrea that being sexually promiscuous was an essential aspect of being a curious, creative, and nonconformant person. And this trend, I mean, this is this is this is this leftist thing. I mean, like this is and this kind of thing about leftism did not exist when I was. This is the, this is why I'm so adamantly like turning on the radical part of my party because this is not leftism. So Dworkin was desperate to escape what she rightly saw as the stultifying sexism of her suburban environment. And men who should have helped her, seeing her intellect, yeah. and they just helped him themselves to her body. Right? So here's a quote from the selection in the reader about her, um, her own life. My life as a writer is the name of the essay. As a child with an immense ambition to live, to know, to feel, I moved toward everything that frightened me. Men, night, the giving up of my own body. I had a high school teacher who said that most girls of my social class who worked, the ideal was not to work, became hairdressers, but I was so smart that I could become a prostitute, which, which at least was interesting. He was my tutor in sex, a guide, a charlatan and an exploiter, but he made the sameness of art and opening my legs palpable, urgent. There wasn't one without the other. I was a motherless child with spirit and intelligence in a world that abhorred both in girls. Oh. I mean, it's, and that is a world that you and I can't appreciate. Thank God. That's the paradigm. She was groomed, we would yeah, say, in today's so speak. She was groomed, yeah. I mean, right? It's, it's disgusting. But she yeah. learned, she has this very early association. She wants to, her parent, her mother doesn't understand her. The school system doesn't have any notion that women are like fully formed human beings. Right. So it's really important to note that the two kinds of sexism here, intellectual suppression um, and sexual exploitation, easily explain one another in a possible theory of patriarchy. To the extent that women are only supposed to be whores or mothers, naturally they can't be intellectuals. Mm. Their bodies are to be used. They are not people to assume a role in public life. Mm. And so from that standpoint, you can see why Dworkin forms a commitment to her writing that is simultaneously a commitment to women's liberation. Just by being who she is, she defies the expectations of her sex. For being her sex, she is abused. Mm-hmm. And note that organs of the state are, in certain cases, her abusers. That's right. She's abused by a teacher, and I think that I assume that was a public school. Mm-hmm. She's abused by prison authorities. So her commitment to liberation from mistreatment of the state is not theoretical. It's real. She's speaking truth to actual power. And because Dworkin approaches her writing and her activism from this firm ground of reality... She runs right into this difficulty that I stated at the start. It's not easy to stop the abuses of the state, yet also see the state as the only solution to certain problems, yeah. such as the production of pornography. Dworkin was firmly of the political left, but she also realized that radicals couldn't and didn't want to make the case against porn. Mm-hmm. Radicals just made all things sexually outré, just as the high school teacher had, right. a symbol of their politics. Literally, political correctness. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> That's right. You just weren't a serious radical if you believed that porn couldn't be transfigured into something revolutionary and empowering. <sighs> this attitude that harms can be mitigated by changing your perspective or language games, mm. this is the cultural trajectory of the left that has slowly permeated and polluted our entire mainstream American society. And from there, as goes America, there goes the Anglophone world, right? Yeah. yeah. The West in general. This is the head of the Nile, this, yes. this, this idea. 
all of the capture of academia by sissified men defining women as expectant assholes and blank, blank eyes. Show notes. All sex work is real work. All trans women are women and no debate start with this split in feminism in the early 80s that had, by that time, it starts in the 70s, had begun to take shape. We read an article together about this conference at Barnard College that took place in the spring of 1982. The subject of the conference was the scholar and the feminist nine towards the politics of sexuality. So it's like, eh, yeah, here, it's like we go. So here we go. It's like, right. <laughs> this really could be considered ground zero for where we are today because the focus was on a feminism that wasn't anti-porn. Judith Butler woo-hoo, was there as a grad student. It's like, literally, let's go back in time. It's like, That's right. <laughs> there she is. Where was working? She was on a picket line Woo-hoo. with other women from Women Against Pornography. They were picketing the conference. Love it. That's over 41 years ago now. And the only party that takes seriously the notion that porn is bad for men, for women, especially for children, is the conservative party. I put in the show notes last time, I think, how Republican-led legislatures are requiring online porn sites to use reliable age verification methods, and that's hard. And so Pornhub, in response, is simply blocking the IP addresses of entire states. <laughs> like, perhaps assuming their porn-addled, you know, dudes are going to call their legislators being like, hey, man, I shouldn't have to pay for this VPN to get my porn. And I mean, like, <laughs> is that going to happen? I don't know. I mean, granted, such a law isn't much because you can't overcome it with a VPN. It doesn't, and it doesn't address at all the harm to women that occurs right. in the making of the porn. It's, so, at least it's like acknowledging, hey, you know, plug this in, A plus B equals C, right? Yes. Even if the political will is meager and the methods are crude, at least the Republicans are willing to acknowledge the reality that children are being harmed by viewing pornography and That's the right. state has an interest in protecting them. That's right. Liberals either don't think the government has that right to interfere, or they don't see or they pretend not to see these harms. Mm-hmm. The through line here from feminists who felt porn was great in the 80s and books like This Book is Gay being put in school libraries, show notes. I mean, if you've been on Twitter in this, if you're on Twitter, you've seen... I don't know what that book is. Okay. (laughs) I'll look at the show notes. You'll look at the show notes. Putting this book in school libraries, like the through line here between defending one and defending the other, I'd say is obvious. The same ideology lies beneath both, namely that obvious harms are being disguised and waved away under the ideology of liberation. Mm -hmm. Back then, it was women's liberation from patriarchy. Now, it's queer liberation from cis-heteronormativity. Then, it was grown women. Now, it's school-aged children who are forced by this mainstreaming of queer theory to choose sexual identities in grade school because that's how you fit in. This has nothing to do with tolerance and liberalism. Should I repeat that? This has nothing to do with tolerance and liberalism. This was not what being a Democrat was or a liberal when I was through my whole childhood and much of my adulthood. And it certainly has absolutely zero to do with classical liberal attitudes towards state education, such as the cases in the 1950s regarding pledging allegiance in schools, where the ACLU fought for students' rights to abstain from this profession of belief. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever known any Jehovah's Witnesses, but they're not allowed to swear allegiances. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, had a friend. It comes from the Old Testament. All through grade school and high school, it was Jehovah's Witness, and she never, she never did that. But it, and it was just never a big deal to any of us. It was like, oh, that's fine. Public school is not... I mean, even the Pledge of Allegiance didn't have under God in it until the whole McCarthy era. Oh, that's right. That was added. <laughs> that's right. Now, if you don't go along with gender identity, you're a fascist. You're the Nazi. The world is literally turned upside down. I'm going to a protest against the ACLU in August. Oh, really? Because, of the, the, because they've been captured by gender ideology. They don't fight for the right to have your own opinion anymore. Oh, wow. It's unbelievable. I mean, so... 
Back from that tangent. I really enjoy Schlafly because she liked work and understands precisely where the rubber meets the road when it comes to changing laws. She's not under this illusion that you can wave away actual harms of sexual violence to women by reframing it. She claims that feminists do this. I actually like the contrast uh, between her that her different perspective provides on this issue because her examples of, about rape have to do with soap opera plots. Oh, that's right. Not rape. Yeah. Rape. Not rape in real life, but rape in drama. She says, this is from her column, Making Heroes Out of Rapists. She says, she gives all these details from these soap opera plots. All these storylines have desensitized viewers to the crime of rape. They present rape as the route to success and good sex. A campaign to get the soaps to cease and desist from such anti-women garbage would be a good project for the feminists. It's not only insultingly sexist, but socially repugnant. But I'm not holding my breath because the feminists have such a warped idea of what sexism is. Mm. They would prefer to continue attacking as sexist a husband who puts his wife on a pedestal and treats her like a queen. Mm. So you see where these two sides are a little meeting but also a little bit talking past each other. Yeah. And Schlafly sees these feminists as the one she the one she's accusing. I think rightly she sees the feminists she's talking about are the ones who won the pro-porn debate. And I think that's correct, because this piece that I just quoted from is written in 1989. Plus, Shafley just probably wasn't able to see or appreciate her alignment with Dworkin because of Dworkin's suspicion of marriage as the institution yeah. that protects women. Yeah. Uh, because it didn't protect Dworkin. Right. Right. Like, both women agree that virtue exists and that women need virtuous men. Women need men to be virtuous, because Dworkin, I mean, she's a lesbian. It's complicated to talk about, because yes. first of all, neither of us are lesbians. Mm -hmm. And second of all, I mean, there wasn't a context where she could announce at 16 I'm a lesbian and never have sex with a man. The context just didn't exist. Right. So these women disagree as to the source of that virtue. Schlafly believes that patriarchy, and let's clarify, that's the rule of the father, meaning limiting men to one wife, socially inducing him to provide for her and respect her, mm -hmm. produces virtuous men. Dworkin doesn't. Or doesn't? I mean, <laughs> she sees the need for other institutions, even the state, to protect women, but how do you get there from there, right? How do you get there in a revolutionary... I mean, it's, it's, it goes into this whole thing about what does the left think? Yes. If they, were, if they overturn all these traditional social relations, what happens, right? That's right. What's left? I think yeah. she was originally... If she was originally hoping that the state would, say, protect women from prostitution and pornography, she soon realized that the left was not interested, actually, in that project. Right. Like, I think she turned to the left because she saw... She says, oh, the source is this. Mm-hmm. And the solution is this, and it turned out that the revolutionary left actually didn't have that. That's right. So she like, sort of wrapped the whole... We don't have a problem with that, so... Right. <laughs> She's like, so the whole thing go? became, like, yeah. it's just the only thing she could see that was the problem was men. Let's move on to talk about more of their common ground, this time on pornography. Let's that, do this. It's bad. <laughs> really bad. All right, so let's start with this quote from Schlafly from um, an article she wrote called Pornography's Victims. If persons in a public or private place commit rape, assault, or battery, they will be arrested and should be arrested. Rapes, whippings, beatings, and unwanted touching of another's body are against the law, and society will and should punish the offender. Why, then, is it not likewise against the law to show a picture of these acts? Do they become socially acceptable just because they are presented on paper or film? Those who answer yes to those questions invoke the First Amendment to clothe their illegal acts. They cry, censorship! to intimidate anyone who wants to stop their public display of and commercial profiting from these illegal acts. Now add another element to this latter question. Suppose all the persons who were the target of these illegal acts were blacks or Jews or Native Americans or children. 
the entire array of civil rights legislation and litigation developed in the last 25 years would move into merciless action. Our prevailing social mores would find such recordings on paper or film socially unacceptable. Publishers, periodicals, entertainment houses, and retail establishments would not risk releasing written or filmed presentations that suggest enjoyment of violent race discrimination, even if the cry of censorship were raised, which it would not be. Why then are these acts not likewise against the law when the group targeted for rape, assault, battering, degradation, humiliation, or other abuse is women? Can these things be socially acceptable just because women are the victims? Are the civil liberties of the abusers ranked higher than the civil rights of the abused? Pornography changes the perceptions and attitudes of men toward women, individually and collectively, and desensitizes men so that what was once repulsive and unthinkable eventually becomes not only acceptable, but desirable. What was once mere fantasy becomes reality. With the poet, we say, truth being truth, tell it and shame the devil. Correct! Yes. Can these things be socially acceptable just because women are the victims? Ding, 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 ding! <laughs> That's what's happening. And we had a whole on. feminism, and this is the thing, like, women, young women, don't know that there was a whole branch of feminism that was against this. Liberal feminism. Mm -hmm. Because that, that has just been like, it's, it's fait accompli, it's like mm -hmm. done. Mm -hmm. Dorkin's faction lost. That's why we're trying to That's why we're resurrect trying to her. resurrect it here. Okay, so I'll read on Dworkin on, on pornography. This is from this is from pornography, but this is comes from the book, I think, um, Intercourse. Or no, just write two books about pornography? She might have. I can't remember. I can't remember either. Show notes! <laughs> the word pornography does not mean writing about sex or depictions of the erotic or depictions of sexual acts or depictions of nude bodies or sexual representations or any other such euphemism. It means the graphic depiction of women as vile whores. In ancient Greece, not all prostitutes were considered vile, only the porneia. Contemporary pornography strictly and literally conforms to the word's root meaning. The word has not changed its meaning and the genre is not misnamed. The only change in the meaning of the word is with respect to its second part, graphos. Now there are cameras. There is still photography, film, video. The methods of graphic description have increased in number and in kind. The content is the same, the meaning is the same, the purpose is the same, the sexuality of the women depicted is the same, the value of the women depicted is the same. With the technologically advanced methods of graphic depiction, real women are required for the depiction as such to exist. The word pornography does not have any other meaning than the one cited here, the graphic depiction of the lowest whores. Whores exist to serve men sexually. Whores exist only within a framework of male sexual domination. Indeed, outside that framework, the notion of whores would be absurd, and the usage of women as whores would be impossible. The word whore is incomprehensible unless one is immersed in the lexicon of male domination. The force depicted in pornography is objective and real, because force is so used against women. The debasing of women depicted in pornography and intrinsic to it is real in that women are so debased. The uses of women depicted in pornography are objective and real because women are so used. The women used in pornography are used in pornography. Yeah, She's just got such brilliant. a turn of phrase here. I hope this connection is obvious to the listener, but she's reacting to what Schlafly says specifically, like the fantasy. You can't justify this. That's right. This is not you, fantasy. You can't, you can't get there from here. What, because what it's looks what, like what, happening right, is happening. Exactly. 
it is happening. Dworkin has to insist here on the yes. objective and, and real aspect of women and the acts in pornography because her leftist pro-porn opposition was and is based on the idea that pornography was about fantasy, about representations, that it wasn't actually what it was. And because it actually wasn't what it was, sexual violence against women, often coerced and forced, created for profit, it wasn't bad. Dworkin is writing to speak the truth, that porn is exactly what it looks like. It is sexual violence, and it is horrible for these women, and I'd argue those men, too, who are participating in it, as well for the almost exclusively men who consume it. So Schlafly doesn't have to climb that same hill. She starts from the position that porn is what it looks like because she belongs to a party that doesn't believe in sexual liberation. Right. At least not the kind that includes porn. I mean, mm-hmm. I consider myself sexually liberated, but not in, that, not in this way. Right. She believes, and I think she comes out winning in many ways, as we've discussed in the last episode especially, that none of the sexual changes promoted by feminism benefit women in the aggregate. Mm-hmm. I'd obviously disagree with Schlafly when it comes to sex outside of marriage or criminalizing abortion, But in the aggregate, as far as promoting rape fantasies, sadomasochism, group sex, promiscuity, and so forth, I'm, I'm like, I'm gonna agree with Schlafly. I mean, when I was in my twenties, there was no such thing as vanilla sex. (laughs) It was was sex, right? That wasn't a term. I mean, it's a (laughs) retronym, like day game in baseball. You know, because like baseball, there was no such thing as a night game because they didn't have lights. Right. (laughs) So when they invented the night game, you had to. the retronym in there is day game. So vanilla sex is a retronym because this idea that being sexually adventurous or unconventional was expected, desired, or this is the key, a sign of virtue, Mm. it didn't exist. Now, kink is a sign of political alignment. Being vanilla in bed signals you are a political prude. So it's like towards the politics of sexuality. It's like we got there and it's horrible. It's terrible. It's the worst kind of sexual psychological blackmail. And this sort of shit, I lay all of it at the sex-positive liberal feminist store. They did this. Yeah. This is this is that shit. Mm-hmm. They own it. And I mean, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I don't think they really want to spread harm to women. But it's just a, it's a function of the fact that they just have the reality meter is broken. <laughs> they just refuse to acknowledge the asymmetrical effect of sexual liberation on men and women. That's right. And this asymmetry originates in sexual difference. And you're never going to get rid of that. Liberating the sexual appetites of men hurts women, as does calling gender just a social construct. I mean, gender is socially constructed, but it's done so based on sex. Sure, it's great not to stigmatize women who want careers, who, are, who engage in premarital sex. But third wave feminism centered on sex and sexual identity cannot live up to these claims that you can render men and women equal because they're just not sexually similar. You can't you can't get there. So in this cross-sex fantasy crap, this gender woo, is bad girl feminism on steroids. Sadly, literally. <laughs> because the effects are utterly asymmetrical. On the one hand, you have male sexual deviants empowered to live their fetish full-time in public, entering women's spaces with impunity. And on the other hand, you have young girls thinking that becoming a man is the way to get out of sexual objectification. And objectification, they suddenly become aware of as when they enter puberty, and they're suddenly desperate to avoid. Totally, totally understandable. Like, yeah. I mean, ugh. these two things are apples and Cadillacs. That's my expression to take it beyond apples and oranges. They are impossibly different. Stranger bedfellows than gay men and lesbians. 
I mean, even lumping them together in a movement was crazy. They're two very different communities. Mm-hmm. You can only lump sexually motivated grown men and sexually uncomfortable, confused young women together into a liberation movement if you willingly blind yourself to the basic motivations and difference of these two groups. Yeah. I mean, I showed you that picture that a detransitioner posted. Oof. Yeah. Maybe we should put that as we'll the, put that, the picture. We should, actually. For this episode. And it's this idea that, well, oh, you know, literally the thought was, you know, take these away and leave me alone. And it shows, like, her breast section and her, you know, genital section just, like, removed from the picture of yep. a young girl. Because it's like, oh, if I don't have these, I can't be objectified. That's right. Yeah. It looks like a Salvador Dali picture because then those two chunks of her that are removed are just, like, lying by her feet on the ground. Yes. And she's, like, standing, like, looking at them. It's so yeah, it's, it's macabre as, yeah. as hell. It's... it's... <sighs> So Dworkin is too smart for this. She doesn't She doesn't do that. She stays true to what reality says, her experience says about it. And uh, this next quote really captures it, and I, that's why I'm going to read it. It ties in, and it also ties in the role of art, which is so mm. important to her. She really, from a very early age, she knew that she wanted to be someone who wrote. Mm. No one really believed me about my husband. I had a deep experience of the double standard, but no systematic understanding of it. The writers I had loved and wanted to emulate, Baudelaire or Artaud or Dostoevsky or Henry Miller or Jean Genet, were apparently ennobled by degradation. The lower they sank, the more credibility they had. I was lowered and disgraced, first by what was being called sexual liberation, then by the violence of domestic sexual servitude without any concomitant increase in expertness. I paid my dues, baby. I know the price of the ticket, but so what? When I emerged as a writer with woman-hating, it was not to wallow in pain or in depravity or in the male romance with prostitution. It was to demand change. Mm -hmm. That's also from my life as a writer. I mean, that's one of the best essays in the the book. So this expression, ennobled by degradation, is the key to this whole gender-woo disaster and largely a key to this whole politics of sexual liberation as well. Mm -hmm. This is the term that perfectly captures men turned women by sissy porn and considered the latest postmodern hotness in academia and, shall we say, government. But the women, just like Dworkin discovered, are only harmed. Mm -hmm. And they come up fighting, saying, as she did, that this isn't what liberation looks like. That's right. It's what bullshit feminism looks like. That's right. As for Schlafly's argument, even if she's not making the lived experience case, she also notices the hypocrisy of the left that says it cares about minority rights but can't see the injustice of porn and prostitution. Mm-hmm. You'd see it, she says, if it was a racial or That's religious right. minority, <laughs> but you can't see it when it's women? How can those same civil rights not apply to them? I mean, again, this applies now even more so, I'd say, with gender woo, doesn't it? Because it's yeah. mainly the rights of sexually deviant men who want access to women's spaces that are being protected at the expense of exactly. women. In a way, Schlafly's accusation is almost like reverse prescient because the meantime the liberals has have evolved this predilection for the oppression of minority groups so far to the extreme that it's come around back on itself and the minority group in this case is white straight wealthy men who are perverted we took the majority and made a minority out of them we we have we think we've constructed this mini teeny tiny sexual minority whose other characteristics are the patriarchy. That's I right. Mean, it's it's patriarchy, patriarchy plus kink is the new minority that they are championing. Like, seriously? Well said. <laughs> well said. Like, well done, left. 
So, I, and I think Schlafly deserves more credit for how she clearly and calmly challenged liberals yeah. who put their fingers in their ears then as now on these stances, like their, on how their own policies were incoherent when it came to these professed goals of liberation of women. Schlafly knew that it was plain to see that neither pornography nor prostitution helped women flourish. Mm. And so she said so. And it is only all these years later that women who are not politically conservative in the way that she is are saying these same things, like yeah. Louise Perry or Mary Harrington. And we might note that like, it's not a coincidence that both those women are, are Brits. That's right. Because they have this political structure over there that is not nearly as polarized on mm-hmm. these axes of either economic issues or religious issues. It's just, it's just not different. It's just this, their system is different. Their, their party evolution is different. Part of what we're doing by reading these women together is hoping that we can foster this realization that your political attitudes can be whatever, mm-hmm. and you can still be in on this. I'd like yes. to see a movement that unites women from all political sides take seriously the deep pornification of our shelled culture. Yes. I'm like, really, really, after we do this episode, I am going to write my thing on modesty for, um, for Zivaldone, because I've been thinking about it for like a year now. It's time. I mean, I really <laughs> think it would be worthwhile to invest some social capital in this goal. You know, perhaps the bursting of the bubble on gender woo, which I think we finally are there in some ways. They're there in the of UK course. for sure. Yeah. Will usher in a moment where women feel motivated to speak more honestly about cultural norms without being branded by their own side or the other side as heretics. Mm-hmm. We could dialogue and we could learn from one another. Because it's not just porn normalization that I think women are silent about when speaking would benefit everyone. I really think another example of this is single motherhood. Mm. I think it does objective and real Mm -hmm. disservice to the child. And I'm sad that it's become normalized. At the same time, the automatic liberal condition part of my brain says, well, of course I'm not going to hold that against someone. I'm a good liberal. (laughs) But I think in some ways, even perhaps unconsciously, when there is a values difference between yourself and others, there is an element of disassociation. Mm-hmm. We may not directly person-to-person shun people who don't share our values, and we shouldn't, probably. I mean, like, within limits, obviously. Mm-hmm. But in the aggregate, we absolutely do this. This is what class is. Yeah. This is Human settlements have always been segregated by what we now call class. I mean, obviously, I have to get big enough. Beyond right. the tribe, though, right. class was quick to follow, right? Yes. The left wants to obsess over these cultural differences as problems to be solved by government, but I find myself less and less sympathetic to that possibility as I get older. Yeah. There's just no... The government cannot leverage... They they cannot send you a check that substitutes for your dad. They cannot do that. I mean, even if money would help mitigate some of the, like, you know, financial, shall we say, disadvantages of single motherhood, it won't mitigate any of the social stuff. What's the man going to do? This man's now this man's now walking around knowing his child is like he can't he's not motivated to I mean these I don't yeah. we didn't need to go there but you know yeah, what I'm saying I, I mean I think it'd be far more effective instead of advocating for essentially what locally around here is beginning to sound like communism it's just far more effective to advocate for the cultural practices that we know work mm-hmm. it's also more honest yeah. I think liberals do judge people but they just do it silently. <laughs> It's like the inverse of conservatives. I had this epiphany the other day. Um, well, I mean, I mean this as like you know, religious conservatives, like whose yeah. religion obligates them explicitly: you shall not judge. Right. But they are honest about their beliefs that certain practices are more correct than others. 
right? Dworkin and Schlafly are both aware that the government and social movements can change the way people live, and they are both advocating for movements that they feel increase the freedom and flourishing of women. And they share a common foundation of what that means. Women should be respected and treated well. That means protection from male violence and exploitation. They might disagree about the role of marriage in this, but nonetheless, their visions of happiness for women starts from an awareness that virtue exists mm -hmm. and that it requires a virtuous society for women to flourish. I mean, not that men don't benefit from virtuous society, but the weaker always suffer more. That's right. So that means that a key feminist principle has to be to name virtue and then to promote it. And so that's why both these women are feminists. That's right. In our version of the feminist universe because yep. they're reality-based and they name virtue. That's right. 100%. I agree. I, to name virtue and to promote it, whether that promotion is political or cultural, like that's the task of honest feminism. And I think bullshit feminism gets caught up in a vision of freedom and liberation like for its own sake, which has clearly resulted in a host of terrible harms to many women. But no bullshit feminism needs to name virtue to articulate the good, which will involve limits and care, right? The kind of constraints that aren't oppressive, but that go with the flow of our human nature because we have a nature that technology cannot liberate us from. That's reality. So along the lines of virtue, Schlafly calls into question the idea that pornography can be subsumed under the liberal virtue and right of freedom of speech. And she just skewers the idea that to make porn illegal would involve the quote-unquote harm of censorship. This is bogus, Schlafly says. You know, the porn is not free speech. It's the depiction of illegal acts. It's not worthy of protection simply because of the fact that it was recorded or photographed. Right? And as Dworkin says, the women used in pornography are used in pornography. Porn is not fantasy. It's objective and real harm. It is vice. But to, to play with this stupid idea further, right? If porn is speech, whose speech is it? Who speaks in porn? The woman? The woman who is statistically likely to have been sexually abused as a child, who's probably living in poverty and desperation, who drugs herself to make herself not feel the reality of what she's enduring, the woman who's prostituting herself on camera, is that porn her free speech? Is she free? What is she saying? I consent. I love it. Hit me, baby, one more time. <laughs> like, bullshit. Of course it's not her free speech. She is the product. She is not the person speaking. All right? She is being made and displayed as pornea, as the whore for male consumption. So this is the, the industry pimp's speech. And his words are lucrative, but for him only, because he can sell her over and over and over again on Pornhub, millions of times a day. She's the whore who never gets tired, never says no, never needs a break, just press play. So we need to divorce porn from First Amendment rights talk, because that's it's morally indefensible. It's not censorship to stop the creation and distribution of porn, because porn is not speech. It's prostitution caught on camera, that's all. It's And prostitution is illegal. And, you know, Schlafly asks, are the civil liberties of the abusers ranked higher than the civil rights of the abused? Currently they are. Shame on us. You know, and shame on everyone who would twist the Bill of Rights to give cover for pimps and johns. That's ridiculous. And I just want to add a word of advice, like, to my own Christian community, which tends to view porn as, like, this matter of personal sexual sin, like of individual contamination, if you yeah. will. Um, it's something that makes the user dirty. And it's definitely looked down upon. Right. And, you know, men will go to like accountability groups or, you know, have programs like, you know, Safe Eyes or these other things they'll put on the computer mm. that if, if they look at something, the whole list of everything they saw gets emailed to a friend. Right. Like oh, there wow. are all these accountability measures that Christian men will take and good. They're trying to stop. Right. But 
the primary emphasis on like it's contaminating you spiritually you're gonna have to repent of that sin and if it's considered socially at all it's usually only in the context of marriage or future marriage like this will hurt your wife this will hurt your marriage right it's it's circumscribed it's narrow and it's true it will hurt your marriage and it will hurt your wife but I think the connection between prostitution abuse and porn needs to be solidly made and driven home in Christian circles because the shame of harming and abusing and paying for real women is worse than the shame of private masturbation and sexual fantasy, right? And that must be understood as the true nature of that sin. Porn is not about falling prey to lust. That's how it's framed, right? Like, oh, I lusted. I looked at a woman lusting. Like, that's not what's going on. It's not, it's about participating as a John in abuse. That's what porn is, I think. The debasing of women depicted in pornography and intrinsic to it is real in that women are so debased, Dworkin writes. And that debasing is the true meaning of what's happening when men look at porn. So I think, I think we need to up the ante within my community about what's really going on. I think there's a real difference that it's worth emphasizing between lusting after a real woman and watching a woman get abused. I think yeah. one is worse. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I understand the moral logic of a Christian position that says, don't do either. Sure. But in the real world, harm column. Yeah. Watching porn is worse because that a woman in the porn was probably abused. Is there a categorical difference in the way Christians think about it that one is worse than the other? Because there's a difference between watching something that happened to someone take place yes. than imagining in your mind. Is there not? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Right. To, to imagine in your mind, you're harming yourself in a way and the people you'll actually interact with. And other women you'd interact with, like, if you put yourself in a frame of mind where you're, like, objectifying women, then I think you do treat other women differently. But, like, that particular woman you're thinking about, if you see her on the street and you pass her by and you never interact with her, it's hard to say there's an actual harm to her. But you're doing something, you're changing yourself through creating a habit. Right, right. A non-virtuous habit, You're feeding that pathway. Right. But it's definitely different to say, you know, in porn, an actual woman is being abused, is being objectified, is being harmed... And then when you're watching it, you're, you're basically paying for and supporting and contributing to and enjoying sexually what is happening to her. And so then you become, I, I think the Christian tradition would say, you become a participant in that harm against her. That's the view I would take is yeah. because you're, you're associating the real world action of harm to your own sexual arousal. Mm-hmm. I don't really believe in thought crime. I guess is what okay. I'm trying to say as a liberal. Okay. Sure. Um, I don't really believe in hate crime either because it's related to thought crime. Mm. Do you think that there are some thoughts that are better than others? Of course. Okay. So maybe not crime, but do you think there's like... I mean, I don't like, believe in like you can be punished for thinking something. Certainly. Certainly. Well, I, I mean, there's all manner of wrongs that are not crimes or wrongs that are not punishable or... Well, and there's, and there's wrongs right. that you wish were more punishable because of malice. Like, <clears throat> down the street Certainly. here, the Shabbat house, they had a house, they had a sign that said, Welcome to Students, and it was stolen. No. Yeah. Like, just, like, right now? Like, right, like, recently? Like, like the beginning of the year, or last year, or last fall, or I, at the beginning of this last, maybe the beginning of last school year. It's terrible. No, it's awful. But if, and because I don't believe in hate crime... That's hard because you want to punish someone because it's a crime motivated by religious malice. Yes. But I don't believe in hate that's crime. That's not, yeah, that's not so, punishable. But it was wrong. It, no, it's punishable as like a misdemeanor, you know, you know, oh, stealing whatever, okay. you know. But if yeah. you, 
the hate crime logic is that because it's motivated by animus, you should punish it more. But I just don't think in the in the end of that game, as much as I feel that it's worse that it's motivated by malice, yeah. I don't think the trade-offs are ones I will, I'd be willing to accept. Yeah, that makes sense. The logic between objecting to porn because it, it's about lust and the logic of objecting to porn because of what it is that took place that was filmed mm-hmm. or photographed, like, they're related, but they're not the same. They are not the same. And the porn is worse because there are objective harms in a way that, that lust may not necessarily have or not to the same degree. Yeah. But in terms of, you know, it's definitely bad to get in that thought pattern of... And I, and I bet, and I think that data would bear this out, that your imagination is less torturous to yourself than... Like, I bet it's easier to bake, break the habit of your own lustful imagination than it is to break the habit of watching something. Oh, I'm sure. Especially for men, because I'm they sure. are completely visually... Was it Bill Maher who said that, like, women are more um, turned on by verbal... He was doing this whole thing. It was thing Peterson. Or, it was Peterson. Peterson, yeah. It was Peterson doing it. Yeah, the verbal porn. The verbal like the porn, stories. the bodice rippers, which I had mentioned, but in the Barbie yes. episode I said, like, we can get yeah. there, you know, one way or the other, and I picked a visual example. I picked yes. Deep Throat Wear, which I should have picked Fifty Shades of Grey. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So for men, you could argue that they're much safer cut off from that visual stimulus. Like, their mind is almost safer for them. And, and I, think, I think women have a hard time understanding that. Really, like truly. Say more. What do you mean? I mean, I just don't think we appreciate how men can't control their responses to visual stimuli, because they right. have to be like that. Because if they weren't like that, we wouldn't exist. Right. Men have to have evolved to not be that picky, because like Correct. the men are, num- amount of people who look like Margot, whatever her name is, yeah, is Margo minimal. Yeah. Is minimal. Yeah. But the general shape of a woman, men are like. That's right. They're really not that That's picky. Right. That works yeah. for them. Well, they, I mean, and the... Especially young women tend to be more conformant to that model, so... Yeah. And the, the approach that I, I can't remember where I heard it, but I, but this is the general approach from the, my Christian background, is that the, you can't help seeing someone, noticing someone, like the first look, that's, that's for free, right? It's the second look. <laughs> it's like, if you look twice, it's the double take, the double take is the, is the, you know, between stimulus and response, there's a space, right? Like, oh. it's where there's, like, like, yes, it's noticing see, and then, woo, and then choosing on. to follow up. Yes, it's the, it's the head turn. Like, I mean, oh, that's, that's an ad, right? Mean. It's like, when you, oh, like, that when he keeps yeah. following her, right? Like, that's, that's, you know, a little more within your, within a man's control but of course the initial whoa that's you know that's not that's not that's That's not biological (laughs) that's not what's that line you know looking at a woman with less than your heart is adultery right it that would i would not think that that would apply to the first whoa it's she's she's right there it would be it would be are you continuing to look are you continuing to think about her after she's passed are you playing out intentionally playing out scenarios rather than distracting yourself with some other thought or like redirect you know redirect (laughs) right that's definitely a part of what i have heard men talk about like you get you get habits of redirection of your attention so that you don't practice dwelling on someone who's not who you're not wedded to basically right but you can't help but Exactly. And it's funny because I feel like that is simultaneously a very Christian concept, but also a very not Christian concept. Because I think there's a lot of new agey spiritualism that dwells on redirecting your attention on mindfulness. I mean, 
I mean, my yoga teacher used to say to me, your most frequent thought becomes your most present reality. And so it's like you feed the mind, and if you yeah. you have to be careful what you feed the mind because yes. if you feed the mind, that's what, that's what you're yeah. you you like you create your reality through the thoughts that run through your head. I think it's it's probably just a component of all wisdom traditions, whether that's you know yes. Eastern it's or whether it's Jewish or Christian. It's a psychotechnology, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so universal, you know, and all. Because it seems very, I guess when I say non-Christian, I mean, it doesn't seem like that advice is particularly, it's for a moral purpose, but it doesn't seem like that advice is about the content of the thought. It's a recognition that we have the power to change our thoughts. Yes. I mean, in that particular line, obviously, it's being Mm -hmm. directed to a particular, Mm -hmm. I'm having in general this sort of moment where I'm realizing that so much of what I thought I knew about the Bible (laughs) is not what the Bible really says because it's been so decontextualized from where it yeah. appears in the Gospels in yeah. common culture. Right. Well, I mean, like along those lines, when Jesus says that about lust, like right after, right before it, he's saying the same thing about anger, like about being angry at your brother, like versus just kind of inside or whether you like call him a name, like, or in like, and you've murdered him in your heart, right? It's the same, it's the same idea about the thoughts. So, so it's not just about lust. It's about this whole approach to, you know, the sin in your heart really counts. You, you can't just be like, well, I didn't do anything, so it's not really bad. It's like, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> Right. It counts, but it doesn't count in the same way. Right. It doesn't. Count. And the reason it doesn't count in the same way is because there's obviously a difference between thinking something and doing something, but there's also a relationship yes. between thinking something and doing something. Right. It's the seed which is and the why, fruit, Right. There we go. That sounds very Christian. (laughs) (laughs) But in this context of porn, I think that's what... Mm. It's interesting because the the seed and the fruit is the Christian argument against porn. Dworkin's argument is kind of the opposite. Because she's kind of Mm. saying, this is the fruit, so it is what it is. She's, She's not trying to make an argument about the intentionality of porn. She's trying to say... It's exactly what it looks like. If it looks That's like right. abuse, it's abuse. That's right. They're, to get rid of this idea of it being fantasy. Like, it right. is reality. It is right. as it appears. Right. I think 80% of people could probably agree on one of those. Right. <laughs> However you get there. <laughs> However you get there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, speaking of 80%, let's talk about <laughs> the total... <laughs> Not 80%-ism of Schlafly and Dworkin. So Dworkin ends up writing a book called Right Wing Women. And we're going to talk about that now. We're going to talk about the glass half-empty vision from Dworkin. Yes. And the glass half-full vision from Schlafly. All right. So, so that you're going to read from Dworkin. Sure. Go ahead. It. Okay. Right wing women have surveyed the world. They find it a dangerous place. They see that work subjects them to more danger from more men. It increases the risk of sexual exploitation. They see that creativity and originality in their kind are ridiculed. They see women thrown out of the circle of male civilization for having ideas, plans, visions, ambitions. They see that traditional marriage means selling to one man, not hundreds, the better deal. They see that the streets are cold and that the women on them are tired, sick, and bruised. They see that the money they can earn will not make them independent of men and that they will still have to play the sex games of their kind, at home and at work too. They see no way to make their bodies authentically their own and to survive in the world of men. They know too that the left has nothing better to offer. Leftist men also want wives and whores. 
Leftist men value whores too much and wives too little. Right-wing women are not wrong. They fear that the left, in stressing impersonal sex and promiscuity as values, will make them more vulnerable to male sexual aggression, and that they will be despised for not liking it. They are not wrong. Right-wing women see that within the system in which they live, they cannot make their bodies their own, but they can agree to privatized male ownership. Keep it one-on-one, as it were. They know that they are valued for their sex, their sex organs and their reproductive capacity, and so they try to up their value through cooperation, manipulation, conformity, through displays of affection or attempts at friendship, through submission and obedience, and especially through the use of euphemism, femininity, total woman, good, maternal instinct, motherly love. Their desperation is quiet. They hide their bruises of body and heart. They dress carefully and have good manners. They suffer. They love God. They follow the rules. They see that intelligence displayed in a woman is a flaw, that intelligence realized in a woman is a crime. They see the world they live in, and they are not wrong. They use sex and babies to stay valuable because they need a home, food, clothing. They use the traditional intelligence of the female, animal, not human. They do what they have to, to survive. Okay. (laughs) That's pretty Pretty dark. Pretty dark. All right, I'll read from Schlafly's essay, What's Wrong with Equal Rights for Women, which is the article that launched her successful movement to defeat the ERA. Of all the classes of people who ever lived, the American woman is the most privileged. We have the most rights and rewards and the fewest duties. Our unique status is the result of a fortunate combination of circumstances. We have the immense good fortune to live in a civilization that respects the family as the basic unit of society. This respect is part and parcel of our laws and customs. It is based on the fact of life which no legislation or agitation can erase that women have babies and men don't. If you don't like this fundamental difference, you will have to take up your complaint with God because he created us this way. The fact that women, not men, have babies is not the fault of selfish and domineering men or the establishment or any clique of conspirators who want to oppress women. It's simply the way God made us. Our Judeo-Christian civilization has developed a law and custom that, since women bear the physical consequences of the sex act, men must be required to pay in other ways. These laws and customs decree that a man must carry his share by physical protection and financial support of his children and of the women who bears his children, and also by a code of behavior that benefits and protects both the woman and the children. This is accomplished by the institution of the family. Our respect for the family as the basic unit of society, which is ingrained in the laws and customs of our Judeo-Christian civilization, is the greatest single achievement in the history of women's rights. It assures a woman the most precious and important right of all, the right to keep her own baby and to be supported and protected in the enjoyment of watching her baby grow and develop. The institution of the family is advantageous for women for many reasons. After all, what do we want out of life? To love and be loved? Mankind has not discovered a better nest for a lifetime of reciprocal love. A sense of achievement? A man may search 30 to 40 years for accomplishment in his profession. A woman can enjoy real achievement when she is young by having a baby. She can have the satisfaction of doing a job well and being recognized for it. Do we want financial security? We are fortunate to have the great legacy of Moses, the Ten Commandments, especially honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days be long upon the land. Children are a woman's best social security, her best guarantee of social benefits such as an old age pension, unemployment compensation, workers' compensation, and sick leave. The family gives a woman the physical, financial, and emotional security of the home for all her life. The second reason why American women are a privileged group is that we are the beneficiaries of a tradition of special respect for women 
It dates from the Christian age of chivalry. The honor and respect paid to Mary, the mother of Christ, resulted in all women, in effect, being put on a pedestal. She goes on to list many other practical benefits and privileges American women have. We'll skip that, as this is the closing. It is time to set the record straight. The claim that American women are downtrodden and unfairly treated is the fraud of the century. The truth is that American women never had it so good. Why should we lower ourselves to equal rights when we already have the status of special privilege? So their perspectives are just night and day here. Schlafly is speaking for conservative women as a conservative woman herself. Like she's speaking about what she knows by experience and she's very positive. It's like, look at all the privileges, the respect and the support and the advantages, the security, the sense of achievement, the reciprocal love and satisfaction and honor that we have through this combination of the Judeo-Christian tradition and the institution of the family. She literally says, we've never had it so good. Which is funny to me because, just as a personal note and aside here, that phrase, you've never had it so good, is a running joke in my house between my husband and me. It's in that, um, it's a line in the cult classic movie, The Princess Bride. My husband loves that film. I <laughs> so, have seen it, but I haven't, I don't have it memorized like he does. Okay. Yeah, my husband literally has it memorized. He, like, memorized it as a child. I've seen it a bazillion times. But there's this scene between this really old couple, Miracle Max, and his wife, Valerie, and he starts, like, fibbing. He's lying. And she jumps out and points a finger at him and says, liar, liar, liar. And he says, get back, witch. She says, I'm not a witch. I'm your wife. And after what you just said, I'm not even sure I want to be that anymore. And he says, you've never had it so good. <laughs> it's Billy Crystal, right? Okay. <laughs> so there's this line by a man minimizing a woman's concerns. You've never had it so good. And my husband and I will use that and play with it, usually in the context of him doing something very sweet and thoughtful and, like, the opposite of sexist. Uh. Like, I'll catch him unloading the dishwasher, which is, like, my least favorite chore, and I hate it. I'll see him doing it, and I'll give him a kiss, and I'll say, I've never had it so good. <laughs> That's awesome. So, so we actually, it's funny, like, we actually have a number of very deeply sexist phrases that are, like, private jokes. Because it's ironic. It's because it's ironic because we are so close and we are such good friends. And you are so lucky. You we You are. recognize your... You're self-aware of the, yes. of the fortune of it. Right, that it could be otherwise. But like, but it is otherwise. It is otherwise I for think. other people. For, and like, we, we are so lucky to have, to have such a good connection. And like, what a ridiculous thought that he would ever actually treat me badly. Right, so the, so the phrase becomes, right, deeply ironic and then funny. All right, on to Dworkin. So Dworkin, who's a radical feminist, you know, deeply opposed to traditional family structures. Well, opposed or unsatisfied with mm. opposed me you're right yeah. I, want to I liked opposed. I think yeah. you're probably right I try to rose color her a little too much I, think. <laughs> I really really liked working I, I love her really but I'm sad I'm sad that she is so yeah. against something that yeah because she's so right about so much she sees right. so clearly about so many things. things but she's really wrong about this one She's deeply opposed to traditional family structures, but she's attempting to speak on behalf of right-wing women, as she calls them, but she has to use her imagination. She's attempting to describe the world as right-wing women see it, and then and she describes their calculating choices, the trade-offs they're willing to make, right? She says that they use their animal intelligence to survive, which is a not-so-subtle jab, I feel like, because she's intimating that their decisions are base decisions, like instinctual rather than enlightened like, regrettable, but forgivable, you know, give you a pass, you know, women, I get why you're doing that, life's hard, there's a little bit of condescension in it as if it's not a thoughtfully chosen decision, it's, you know, just to survive, 
And so, although I, I wouldn't consider myself right wing, that sounds like the wings sound too extreme, but I'd say I was raised on the right and I know the world of conservative Christianity, particularly I would say conservative Christianity pre-Trump. And I can confidently say that Dworkin is seeing for herself. She is not seeing with our eyes, but with her own eyes. She's projecting, basically. She doesn't interpret the world the way that we do. <laughs> so she doesn't see what we see. I think Dworkin operates with a hermeneutic of suspicion, with a mode of perception and interpretation that is skeptical, that attempts to see through what's there to some deeper malevolent purpose, to some base motivation at the core of things. I think she starts with the assumption of patriarchy and then goes looking for it and then finds it. You know, she says, they see that traditional marriage means selling to one man, not hundreds, the better deal. And they see that the money they can earn will not make them independent of men and that they will still have to play the sex games of their kind at home and at work too. And I want to say, no, we don't. We aren't that cynical. Like, we don't see that. Okay, we don't frame the world in this competitive, dangerous, survivalist, play the game kind of way. My experience of conservatism, again, pre-Trump, because I think things have become deeply cynical in this populist form lately, but my experience of conservatism is that we operate from a hermeneutic of beauty, from a hermeneutic of trust, in which our first glimpse or gestalt of the world is that it is good because God made it, and that the core of the world is not power, as Dorgan describes, but love. Right? She says that right-wing women try to up their value beyond mere sex objects through displays of affection or attempts at friendship, which again is so cynical. Like Truly. attempt, display. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like my experience and that of the vast majority of conservative Christian women I know is that affection and friendship with their husbands is not fake. It's a genuine article. It is not a display. Like many of us really have mutual, cooperative, joyful, and safe marriages. And I think because of her experiences, Dworkin can't believe that such a good thing actually exists. You know, like she has to come up with some calculating trade-off in which right-wing women are selling out their sisters to keep a roof over their heads. And she may, like, not have been heterosexual either. Talk about coercive heterosexuality. I mean, like, she lived that. Like, there's an idea about it. We can talk about heteronormativity, but, like, she was just basically co-opted into it. Mm. Like, she didn't have a choice because the way that she entered sexual experience was completely... That's right. You know, it was... It was abusive. Right. Right. Um. Yeah. And I can't say that it's never been the case for any traditional woman that, that, you know, I'm sure there have been women who have been calculating in this way and who have, you know, played the game. Pride and prejudice. (laughs) All the the episodes are blurring together. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm, yeah, I'm sure it happens. But in my experience of living in in the, the realm, the world that I know of conservative women, that would be the exception. You know, and most Christian women that I know of are aware of which subcultures and which denominations are more prone to this kind of submissive woman or biblical womanhood rhetoric, this kind of rad trad emphasis on male authority. Like in the wake of Me Too, there was a Church Too movement. Oh, you know? really? Oh, yeah. I miss that. Oh, so we, you know, we've yes, we have our own like oh abuse within churches and pastoral abuse and like men on elder boards covering things up. You know, like we've had our own like we we get it um you know, like so we're aware of these issues in the way that like a healthy person is aware of like having carpal tunnel in their right hand like it doesn't mean that the whole body is diseased and on death's door right it means <laughs> conservative christianity has its vulnerabilities and we have to practice sisterly solidarity in exposing abuse sticking up for each other right it's a it's a bug not a feature is what i'm trying to say mm-hmm. and i feel like she paints this as a feature she, of the conservative yeah she thinks approach. it's unre- unredeemable right irremediable i think yeah but i i really do think that you know 
most of us are, you know, stable and happy enough and not terrified, like Dworkin thinks we are, you know. And she also says that, that women use sex and babies to stay valuable because they need a home, food, and clothing. Schlafly says that respect for the family and obligatory male support gives women the most precious and important right of all, the right to keep her own baby and to be supported and protected in the enjoyment of watching her baby grow and develop. So they're talking about the same marital and familial arrangement, but to Dworkin, it's a raw deal to keep yourself off the street. Well, to Schlafly, it's like the love nest of joy and fulfillment. And they're both equally talking about their very own lives. They are. They are. And, and, and how can we not but do, like, we all do that. We, all, we have to do we that, because otherwise, it's what, we what, know. what could we say uh, honestly but what we know? Right. And so you've got, like, on the one hand, this desperate calculation versus the desire of your heart. You've got suspicion versus beauty. Power versus love. Trauma versus trust. And so, you know, through no fault of her own, and probably due, you know, not only to her history of abuse, but also um, to the fact that she never felt loved by her mother, and that she also had no children of her own, I don't think Dworkin was capable of seeing what most conservative women see. Like the beauty, the goodness, and the love involved in marriage and motherhood. So she couldn't understand why we choose what we choose. She had to describe it in a way that's comprehensible to her, and in doing so, she misrepresents us. So, although I'm criticizing Dworkin's take here, I really do, I really do love her and her work, you know, particularly on the topics of porn and rape and abuse. I think she's brilliant. I think her voice is necessary, you know, even if she has this enormous blind spot about the value of the family. And I think that everyone listening to this really does need to read her. Oh my God, yeah. She's, she's, she's a joy to read just because, I mean, it's terrible to read about the subjects she writes about, but she's a joy to read just because of the way she writes. Oh, she's brilliant. She's a very good writer. Yeah. I agree that Dworkin is at her weakest when she overgeneralizes about the perniciousness of the family. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm unable to take her seriously when she spouts this, like, pablum of the left about how, like, quote, how the nuclear family and ritualized sexual behavior imprison us in roles and forms which are degrading to us. Every political movement that has thought to disrupt the nuclear family has always led to totalitarianism and, like, rampant killing. So, suspicious. Red flag. Yeah. <laughs> but the vast majority of her work is better than this, right? Yes. It's better because, as we were just saying, it's more specific, and so it's more insightful. Yeah. Overall, I don't think she's the kind of throw-the-baby-out-with-the-bathwater feminist. Correct. But she definitely is in this case. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going to give my defense to, to the extent that I can. I, I feel like she's able to make such good argument about the problems that we do agree with her on more. Mm-hmm. We, we, the problems of porn, prostitution, marital abuse is that she is not saying that this is what the nuclear family produces. Mm-hmm. So it, it's interesting because a lot of leftists tie these two things together in a way that really is really kind of gross and unconvincing. Like, they'll say the nuclear family causes all the other dysfunction. And at least she's not that kind of... Right. She's not saying that. She's not saying that um, it's because we have families that all these things exist she's just saying her critique is from the point like men are just so unpredictably awful that you can't build a successful society by relying on men to be virtuous right so because she doesn't i think she knows that there can be virtue in family relationships and she talks very movingly actually about her father's dedication Mm -hmm. to her both herself and her brother Mm -hmm. So she isn't saying, like so many leftist movements who, that take their cues either from childhood difficulties or Marxist theory or both, that the family as an institution must be destroyed because it is an anti-revolutionary and fundamentally oppressive structure. Mm. What she's saying, I think, 
is that the society where marriage is viewed as the main social structure between men and women and children does not have a way to protect women from the failures of that structure. Yeah. That's a good point. <laughs> I mean, at least what Dworkin says about these failures isn't theoretical. She speaks from the experience of having been a battered wife and having very little legal or social recourse or refuge from her abuser. Right. So while, yeah, she's probably... She has to make up a lot of what she cannot see about women who are happy. She's not making up the things she says about That's women right. who are not. That's right. Exactly. I think... Her position could be most charitably summed up like this. It's not that the family cannot ever protect women. She just has the receipts to show that the laws and the culture of patriarchy are not sufficient in all cases. There's an insufficient safety net for women who are married to bad men. Yeah. There were even greater social impediments 40 years ago, but she's still, I think, largely correct. Mm -hmm. And I don't think either of our political parties is really serious about ending male violence against women. I mean, maybe it's not something that can be realistically accomplished through politics. And I, I'm pretty sure that she died believing that it probably, that she didn't, I think she lost her faith in politics okay. by the time she died. That politics could protect women yeah. from male violence. Yeah. Did she, do you know she ever came up with some alternative? I think she saw the role for the state to like step in and... I think she also knew that, like, the state is just a bunch of people, and half the people in the world <laughs> are, are men, men. <laughs> so, and 25% what? of the women are, like, right there with the men, you know, like, let's have some porn, it's liberating, you know? <laughs> so it's just not gonna work. So, yeah. it's it's not really a solvable problem, you know? Oh. I mean, even if it is a pipe dream, though, my gripe with the current left is that they just deny the problem even exists. Yeah. They really want to believe that women can opt out of oppression if they don't want to be women, and that any kind of perversion or exploitation can be reframed as liberation. I wish the Democratic Party could come back from this cloud cuckoo land on the issue of what is good for women. It doesn't mean we have to bring back the stocks and shame lusty women in the public square. But it does mean, I think, we have to stop defending porn and, yeah. and prostitution as socially desirable outcomes for any woman. We're, we're never going to be able to deal with the pervasive issue of violence against women if we can't speak honestly about the per pernicious effects of pornography. Dworkin is out of style now among radical, radical feminists because she wouldn't close her eyes to this reality. Yeah. I mean, she's just and like... I love her for that. Yeah. yeah. Now more than ever, there really is this leftist notion that if you can just change the language or change the you know, change the way you treat somebody or change the way you f talk about it, that the harm disappears. And it's like, that's not how, that's not how the real world works, people. Oh. No. <clears throat> you can't redefine a problem out of existence. If suddenly a man can be a woman and a man who rapes a woman can be a, a woman, you, you can literally eliminate male violence against women because you can define it out of existence. That's right. And the statistics will look better. Look. Reduce look, violence. There's no There's no male violence. It's just... Women, you know. It's just women with penises raping other women. Women, exactly. What male violence? <laughs> We've successfully socialized men not to rape. Because that's literally been the argument. I mean, it really is. Like, there's just so many examples of this, like, we really believe that if we um, say the right things and change the words and use the correct words, that harm disappears. Mm. And it's like, mm, no. no. Because, like, <laughs> just because you don't, you know, you, like... You know, Charles Murray talks about this. You go from, like, bastard to illegitimate child to single mother. Oh, interesting. Right? And and it's like, no, actually, like... I mean, I agree that it would suck to be, you know, called a bastard. 
I mean, but bullying always sucks. Doesn't matter what they're saying. But but his point is more like, well, the child doesn't have a father. Like no matter what you call that, you're right. not changing that. That's right. And it's still not changing that. It's still hurtful for the child, and with a bad effect on the child, even yeah. if the language sounds nicer when people talk about it and there's less stigma surrounding it. The lack is still there. The harm and the lack is still there even if the language reduces the stigma. I I actually have been thinking, like, the more we have, the more we talk about, you know, our problems with the way that, like, what we, I think what we've just decided is, like, capital B, bad, capital F, feminism. That's like, you know, (laughs) fight bad feminism. That'll be our t-shirts. We should do t-shirts. We should. The more we talk about, you know, bad feminism... The more I realize how much we take for granted, the fact that I can leave my house wearing pretty much whatever I want mm-hmm. and not have to think, oh, am I going to be, like, attacked or harassed because I'm a woman walking on my own to my job? Mm-hmm. Like, we're lucky. So I, I actually do have a lot of sympathy for Schlafly's kind of, like, thank God we're in America kind of attitude, yeah. separate from her religious slant, which I don't really share, yeah. but we are lucky because, I mean, I mean, Afghanistan is an extreme, but there's lots of places in between, like Egypt, like you read about like just routine sexual harassment of women in public. I mean, yeah. we are very lucky. And it seems like, in, in general, like my sort of like don't tempt fate kind of attitude, my <laughs> sort of, you know, secular Jewish cynicism says, you know, don't, don't mess with it. It is this kind of thing of, like, why is this, there this urge to push things even further? Like, why do women have to think, like, I should be able to wear whatever I want and not attract, you know, X, Y, Z, you know, nothing bad should happen to me. It's like, there's only two ways to achieve that. One is to have an incredibly authoritarian state. Like, Singapore does not have these kinds of problems. Because if you get caught doing anything, they just chop one of your hands off. I mean, not quite literally, but they do, like, public vloggings. They do, like... Whoa. Yeah, no. Okay. Singapore is, like, a very authoritarian state in the sense of their, like, punishment. So, like, but it's a very safe Safe. place. If you follow all the Remember, (laughs) trade-offs. Yes. No solutions, right? So, to me, a lot of this, like, progressivism feels like this blind, you know, like, why do we have to push things to the, to the absolute maximum? Why can't we be satisfied with the fact that, you yeah. know, certain things are provocative? It's like what we're talking about with porn. It's like, I think men have a right to walk in public without seeing naked women, just as I have, mostly naked women, yeah. just as I should have a right to see, like, to not see, like, men in their adult diapers at, you know, in a pride parade. Yeah. Like, I feel like we owe each other certain, yeah. it's decorum. Well, I was that... digging through our notes. Oh, really? The word decorum. We did this go. whole exchange about decorum. Yeah. Well, and I love even that phrase, like, this is what we owe one another. Right? Absolutely. And that gets relationship and virtue. Yeah, and social contract. connectedness. It's like, I'm not just this autonomous person that can wear whatever I want and go do whatever I want. It's like, without affecting anybody. It's exactly. Like you're affecting other people all the time. So you at least owe them the courtesy or the, yeah, the decorum of thinking, how might this affect someone else? Not that you have to be totally controlled by it. You have to think about it. You should definitely think about it. And it and it's one of those things where Dworkin didn't do anything to be the victim she was. I mean, yeah. she didn't bring that on herself. No. But at the same time, this attitude, and I think that's why she was able to make such a convincing case to say that reframing these things that are harms, that are indisputably harms, to try to reframe pornography to be liberating 
is a is a wrong path because she's saying no you can't reframe harm because i felt this harm and there's nothing i can do to reframe it to make it not harm that's right i think it feel deeply insulting and re-traumatizing to hear people describe the awful things that have happened to you and, and to try to spin it in some in more positive way i would hate that if it happened to me i think she was incredibly felt in a very deep sense of betrayal yeah Right. Not just so, by women on the left, but also side. by men on the left. And yeah. I mean, she's... One of her great insights without meaning to have it is perhaps this idea that she knew that she recognized that men are men first and political second. Ah. She's, that's what that passage really means. And I think that's true. I think it's absolutely true. Yeah. I think it's absolutely true. Yeah. Well, if that's true, then is it also true that women are women first and political second? It has a different I mean, flavor. Clearly, <laughs> although I, I which is I think what we're trying to figure out and yes. learn is that we are women before we are political creatures, so we can have we can talk to to one another and come to consensus because we're women first before any other allegiance like that. Maybe Dworkin doesn't realize that not all women want the same thing either, because she's thinking she's thinking like if you don't want to get married, you don't want to have kids, you're fucked. And <laughs> most women are thinking, but I want to get married, I want to have kids, yeah. it's fine, right. And they don't, it's hard to see the other side. Like, uh-huh. it's hard to, like, I don't know what it's like to be not attracted to men in a society where most men are attracted to women. I haven't experienced yeah. that. I don't know what that's like. Yeah. I imagine that's different. I imagine it's really different. Mm. Well, it's that, it's that problem of the rule and the exception again. Mm-hmm. Like, that they can, you know, the rule can be callous and think that exception is invisible and doesn't matter. And then the exception can, like, take such umbrage at the fact that most people aren't like them. And feel oppressed by just the fact that they're outside of the norm. Yeah, and even the norm if, even is if not, no one's meaning you harm at all. Well, and the norm is not a moral judgment. The norm is a yeah. mathematical term. That's right. 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 And so we have to learn how to deal with that. And the left really does feel like has defined the norm and the non-norm as this power relationship. Yeah, and, and I don't think it has to be that. And and the thing about that that's so discouraging about power kind of discussions that we seem to be having about the marginalized. It's like you want to set men who want to be women up as the you know most the the most maligned minority in the world you're really missing you're mistaking the force for the trees because several women every week are murdered by their you know partners it's just it's yeah just, why, yeah why are we not talking about that <laughs> we're not talking about it because it's, it's something that you can't solve by changing the language oh that's why it's like a, like it's an old quick fix problem like well it's, we it's, switched the language about this look at all the justice well, right. we're if we doing. just accept that trans women are women that problem goes away. I mean, it, it really is like a very right. deep conviction that if yeah. we just change... They, they believe that words really are violence, and they've forgotten about the violence that's really violence. And that's why yeah. that brings us to our last thing that we're going to talk about, which is just this brilliant, brilliant essay that she writes um, about... Uh, Dworkin writes about Nicole Brown Simpson. Yeah. An event that I think is... Well, certainly in my memory, because I was in college. Yeah. I, was, I think it was in my first year of college. I was a freshman in high school, so... Okay, that's about right. Mm -hmm. Do you want to read this? Sure. Yeah, this deeply moved me. Um, And apparently you said you can find it on YouTube. We'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, it's of her at a book tour or whatever reading this art, reading this essay. It's very powerful. On the same day, the police who beat Rodney G. King were acquitted in Simi Valley. A white husband who had raped, beaten, and tortured his wife, also white, was acquitted of marital rape in South Carolina. He kept her tied to a bed for hours, her mouth gagged with adhesive tape. 
he videotaped a half hour of her ordeal, during which he cut her breasts with a knife. The jury, which saw the videotape, had eight women on it. Asked why they acquitted, they said he needed help. They looked right through the victim, afraid to recognize any part of themselves, shamed by her violation. There were no riots afterward. The governing reality for women of all races is that there is no escape from male violence because it is inside and outside, intimate and predatory. While race hate has been expressed through forced segregation, woman hate is expressed through forced closeness, which makes punishment swift, easy, and sure. In private, women often empathize with one another across race and class because their experiences with men are so much the same. But in public, including on juries, women rarely dare. For this reason, no matter how many women are battered, each one is alone. Surrounded by family, friends, and a community of affluent acquaintances, Nicole Simpson was alone. Having turned to police, prosecutors, victims' aid, therapists, and a woman's shelter, she was still alone. Ronald L. Goldman may have been the only person in 17 years with the courage to try to intervene physically in an attack on her. And he's dead, killed by the same hand that killed her, an expensively gloved, extra-large hand. Though the legal system has mostly consoled and protected batterers when a woman is being beaten, it's the batterer who has to be stopped, as Malcolm X used to say, by any means necessary. A principle women, all women, had better learn. A woman has a right to her own bed, a home she can't be thrown out of, and for her body not to be ransacked and broken into. She has a right to safe refuge, to expect her family and friends to stop the batterer, by law or force, before she's dead. She has a constitutional right to a gun and a legal right to kill if she believes she's going to be killed, and a batterer's repeated assaults should lawfully be taken as intent to kill. Everybody's against wife abuse, but who's prepared to stop it? And so we'll read a corresponding passage from Schlafly. This is her from her essay, Family Violence is Everyone's Concern. While the main source of fear for most people is violent crime by strangers, some Americans find that their own family members are the source of their most intense fear. They do not have to step outside their own houses to be abused, assaulted, maimed, or killed. Usually, it is the man in the family who abuses his wife or children. The head of the household, the very one charged with providing support and safety to the family, may actually inspire anything but secure feelings. The home, instead of a haven from outside forces, becomes a prison of hopelessness and of demeaning, violent behavior. Women are pushed, punched, kicked, beaten, hit with fists, slapped, or attacked with a weapon. Some are killed. Most Americans do not want to admit that family violence is a real and enormous problem. Somehow, our society seems to have a collective unwillingness to admit that violence within family life is a tragedy of our time. We tend to ignore the violence, or condemn the victim, or choose sides, while allowing this terrible problem to evolve into a legacy of abuse. Only when we realize that violence touches our neighbors, our friends, and even our own families will we be committed to purging it from the homes in America. Hiding the crime, or hiding from the crime, may be almost as wrong as perpetrating it. Tom Clifford of the Newport News Daily Press Times Herald says, People who live in domestic violence live in a tyranny of terror, end quote. Their plight is grievous because they believe that they have no place to go where they can be safe and no one to whom they can turn who will listen with an understanding heart. They wear a mantle of guilt, which has been placed on them by themselves and society. Family violence is not just a political issue. It is a pro-family issue, a man's issue, a woman's issue, a church issue, a civic issue, and a criminal issue. 
Family violence is everybody's issue. We must all act in ways to intervene, prevent, support, and protect the victims. It is a human rights issue for which we must all take responsibility. This is glorious, right? <laughs> Two women who are in most senses perfect opposites yeah. making the same simple case for the human rights of women. Yes. They're both completely clear who the victims are. The victims are women who are abused by men. And they are also clear where the solution lies. It lies in all of us. Mm -hmm. To solve this problem, we have to face it. And it's pretty clear that we aren't facing it. This is my take on it. Like, I feel like too many conservatives seem to be saying, just live by the Bible, it'll be fine. Mm -hmm. They say that they see this social ill as simply signifying a desertion of traditional values. And if you return to the values, you, you solve the problem. But I think that's too simplistic, obviously, because some believers are abusers and many non-believers are not abusers. The left, whose shirking of this issue hurts me more, mm -hmm. seems to have forgotten what real harm is. Women are over half the population, and women are regularly murdered by their male partners. But this no longer counts as oppression. It, there's just not even any public discourse about no, it anymore. Oppression is no longer about physical safety in your home. It's about not being accepted for your true self. It's language games, right? If you can just be truly who you are, goes the latest civil rights mantra, yeah. everything will be fine. That's not only too simplistic, it's also largely wrong. Mm -hmm. Because happiness isn't freedom. Happiness is virtue. And indeed, virtue requires limitations. Right. So this comes back to the old age Marxist axe grinding against the family. Because it is the family, goes the, you know, this philosophy, that it's, it's the family that instills limitations. Mm -hmm. I mean, frankly, childhood <laughs> is basically a nonstop hazing by family <laughs> and community. That there, A, there are rules, and B, we expect you to learn them and obey them. Yeah. Maybe it sucks, but it's necessary. Jordan Peterson is like, he says that, you know, if you haven't raised your child to be acceptable to other adults by the time they're five, you fucked up. You failed. Yeah. They can't and I, come back. <laughs> how are they supposed to get along? How are they supposed to function in society when, when they can't be made intelligible and acceptable to other people? I think there is a strong connection in conservative thought between social rules and liberty. If the government does too much, it's the fast track to fascism and the loss of our freedoms. Mm -hmm. But I think that's an off-putting and not terribly accurate way of expressing something deeper. Without order that is enforced by soft forces, you will either have chaos or, or maybe and or, the emergence of hard forces, which will be far uglier than local responsive mechanisms of social negotiation. Yeah. I'm really sympathetic to the idea that this, this state cannot and should not substitute for the family, despite the fact that in any case there are no solutions, only trade-offs. But the conservatives aren't being honest in confronting the fact that violence against women does represent a human rights violation. And it's not enough to say, family values and stop abortion during the election years. I mean, it's not enough. Yeah. You're right. It's not enough. You know, and and even, even if there's data to back up this idea that, that, that faithfully practicing religious believers are less violent on average, that doesn't mean that the solution to wife beating is proselytizing and dragging men to church. Right? Like, it's, if, if there's... If there's Correlation, if there's causation there, it's probably the other way around. Is that right. people who go to church are just, like, they started off being people That's less right. likely to abuse. Exactly, exactly, right, yeah. It's something about the conscientiousness or whatever. Yes. Um, it's, it's probably what it is. So you said a moment ago that, like, that neither party is serious about ending male violence against women and that maybe it's not something that can realistically be accomplished through politics. And I would add neither can it realistically be accomplished just through religion alone. Like, because politics is about what is public rather than what is private. Right. 
right? So the whole idea of having a secular liberal society like ours is based on this distinction of public and private, which may in fact be a specious distinction that's not legitimate, but that's a question for another day. Mm -hmm. I'll have to explore that. But under this system, politics deals with public matters, but what happens in the home, what happens between the sheets, what too often happens in cases of domestic violence and coercion and rape and intimidation, that occurs in the private realm. Right? It's, it's the realm of he said, she said. And our justice system is horrible at investigating and successfully prosecuting rape because it's so intimate and private. Right? In most rape cases, the question isn't whether intercourse happened, but whether it was consensual. And since the vast majority of rapes are perpetrated by someone the victim knows or has already been intimate with before, it's really difficult to prove a lack of consent. So... And, and we're also inheritors of that kind of not my business vision of neighborliness. Oh, that, you know, <laughs> yeah, oh, that the poet Robert Frost wrote about, right? In, in his poem "Mending Wall," good fences make good neighbors, right? When Dworkin was screaming as her husband beat the shit out of her, the neighbors on the floor below they heard it. But you know, good fences make good neighbors. It's not my business to stand between that man's fist and that woman's face. That's private. That's personal. So, according to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, one in four women has experienced severe intimate partner violence, and one in ten women is raped by her intimate partner. And I do not know how a problem like this, which mostly happens in private, in relationships where the woman has some kind of dependency on the man, and leaving the abuser will only initiate stalking and terrorizing, how can that be adequately addressed within liberalism which champions the privacy and freedom of the individual? Like, nobody wants the state in their bedroom. And right? we don't have a legal system where you can arrest the person before he commits the crime. Right. Like, I, I think we have to rely on non-political strategies to transform intimate spaces. Like, it, it used to be the case that extended family and neighbors were more up in each other's business. I know on a previous podcast you mentioned, you know, that, that your husband, the way he was raised, like, that there was this, there was this sense, like, oh, if, if, a, if a man, you know mistreated a young woman her father and brothers were gonna come after him right there was this like we will be up in your business you do not do that like it was personal right <laughs> people got hurt <laughs> right people were more up in each other's business but I think that community stigma towards abuse and community support of the abused is going to be the front line in a way that police and the law can't be because they're always too little too late even if they tried their best to be on the victim's side like that's always after the fact right and like Dworkin says, every woman has a right to safe refuge to expect her family and friends to stop the batterer by law or force before she's dead. And Schlafly says, you know, we must all act in ways to intervene, prevent, support, and protect the victims. It's a human rights issue for which we all must take responsibility. I think it's taking responsibility. It can look like a myriad of different things. Yes, it could mean volunteering at a hotline or a rape crisis shelter. It can mean standing in between a man's fist and a woman's face or calling the cops. Like those are sort of the obvious things. But I think it can also mean raising self-controlled and respectful sons, raising outspoken daughters with firm personal boundaries. It can mean being uncomfortably honest with a friend who's dating a man that gives you the creeps. Like, if you're a good man, go take Brazilian jiu-jitsu so you can know how to grapple and incapacitate somebody dangerous without hurting yourself. It can mean being the kind of non-judgmental listener uh, who's gentle, who can kind of pick up on another woman's distress and help her figure out next steps. It can mean ensuring that your church has safeguarding procedures to prevent child abuse. It can mean limiting your teen's internet access so they can't see porn easily or often or at all so it doesn't end up polluting their desires and attitudes towards women. It can mean openly talking about porn as prostitution. 
as disgusting as degrading and evil. This one might be controversial. I don't know, but I'm going to say it anyway. It can it can also mean not laughing at Amber Heard when she testifies in a televised courtroom about being raped with a wine bottle by Johnny Depp. I mean, the internet just had a field day creating memes to add to her public humiliation. It was just shocking to me to see all these fangirls lining up at the courthouse to cheer for Johnny Depp, to see internet bros create memes about Amber Turd. In a text that was, that was read in court, Johnny Depp hoped that Amber's, quote-unquote, rotting corpse is decomposing in the effing trunk of a Honda Civic, end quote. And so we're supposed to laugh like that was a joke or be like, oh, how rude of you, Johnny, but he didn't really mean it, you know? Like, what the hell? After all the intensity of the Me Too movement, we had this sick, cathartic throwback moment of, like, publicly castigating, you know, that lying whore. And I think Amber was the scapegoat for our culturally collective overwhelm with Me Too. She ceased to be an individual human woman in that courtroom, and she just became a symbol that people could reject and ignore without getting in trouble for it. And like I was telling you the other day, I, I wish Dworkin was alive to write a scathing article about how mm. the public pilloried Amber for crying on the stand as she recounted these scenes of domestic and sexual abuse by Depp, and so few people believed her. Like, the men on the jury said that her tears made them uncomfortable. Ouch. Like, oh, I'm so sorry, Mr. Juror, that you felt emotionally uncomfortable watching a woman cry in public about being violently raped. You know, did you happen to feel uncomfortable at all about the fact that she was raped? Or was it just, you know, this public display of female emotion kind of got to you? Like, so sorry she couldn't make, you know, couldn't discuss her abuse more calmly so that she could feel more comfortable in the courtroom. It just makes me livid. It's it's one of those lost the plot moments, right? Mm. And I was, I was just so profoundly moved by Dworkin's writings about Nicole Brown Simpson. I cried when I was reading them. I, mean, I, I cried when I read them right here. Yeah. No, it's like, it's just horrible what Simpson endured and... And the trial that should have brought her justice was reframed as being all about racism against O.J. Like, the real story that he was a longtime abuser, a rapist, a stalker, and a murderer got totally lost in favor of this shinier narrative about skin color. You know, but, but like Dworkin said, it's the perpetrator, stupid! <laughs> you know? So I, I will never be the same after reading Dworkin's writings on abuse. I really think she changed something profound in me, because I'd never been exposed to anything like that, and... I think I had rose-colored glasses from my own upbringing, my Schlafly-esque upbringing, and um, just the way that she can write about abuse and about what women suffer. I can forgive her for all of the, for all the mistakes in there, just the fact that she can articulate what that experience is like. I, just, I feel it in my body when I, when I read her words about that. I feel like, and I feel the sisterhood of that. Be like, what would it be like to be a woman terrified for your life this man who says he loves you and you know and you don't know if you're gonna survive to the next morning it just it's very powerful Illich talks about when people were more dependent on each other for survival and he talks about how like you hadn't planted your garden you know by a certain time somebody would stick like a broom in your yard or something like he talks about these little vignettes (laughs) get your act together about social reinforcement and we really do live in this society where we believe that we can all just do our own thing as long as we're not harming another person. And if you're still a Schlafly, it's all fucking grand. Like, if you're you and me, it's fucking grand. We're, we're fine. We get all the freedom. We get all the, the freedom and none of the, none of the downside. That's right. But if you're a woman who has nowhere to turn except the kind of, like, inefficient, captured, too late, mm-hmm. dollar short, in a day late mechanisms mm-hmm. of the state, you're fucked. I mean, you're like, 
you're dead or you know or you're terrified or you're beaten it's a very inequitable system right. it's like i mean some people some people say to me oh why do you care about this whole gender affirming care this is not very many people that it's affecting mm. and it's like by the numbers yeah it isn't i mean like by the end of this there will probably be fewer than say shall we say five thousand women who've had their breasts removed unnecessarily and inappropriately right um, so, like, that's not in a, cu- a country of, like, 330 million people. That's a very, very insignificant yeah. number of people. So what's your response to that? Well, the, the idea, it's this thing about, like, yeah. li- it's the disproportionate harm. Like, it harms those oh. people irrevocably. Like, these families, yes. like, it's just... Yes. Right? So, yeah. part of it is just that we just don't have this way to compute our responsibility... And, and also different things galvanize us for different reasons. I think there right. is this, like, the looking through the victim because you're like, there's this thing. You want to just pretend that it can't happen to me. Because we don't actually, like, we kind of live in a world where you and I take for granted that it can't happen to us. We right. actually enjoy that luxury. Yeah, that like, we, we live that. We live this, like, presumption of safeness, of yeah. safety that yeah. many women don't live. And... I mean, ultimately, so what I was saying about Illich is, like, I think when people needed each other more economically, they, because they had to intervene when someone wasn't pulling, like, wasn't hoeing their garden, they also were just more, they were more in the habit of intervening about these other things. Like, you could no more fail to plant your garden than you could beat your wife. Because, like, it actually had an effect on the other person. Because if you were beating your wife, that meant that your wife wasn't able to do things the community needed her to do Uh that were related to the harvest or the whatever. Right. Like, so everyone just has more stakes in one another's yes. quote-unquote private, private lives. There wasn't such thing as That's that. That's right. The, it's this private-public distinction. It's this consumption-oriented yeah. lifestyle of, like, my property, my life, my privacy. They all go together. They, they go together right. as a bundle. And so, you know, you have to say to women, like, the trade-off for being able to, like, live alone, walk around, take an Uber, blah, 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 and, like, most of the time, 99.99% of the time, perfect safety... The trade-off for that is that the women who are in the 0.01% have no recourse. It's it's the story of, what's that Ursula K. Le Guin story about, like, you know, the walking away from Omelas or whatever that story is that I haven't read? I haven't read that either. But it's like, you know, um, if everybody, if, it's this, it's this one of these, I think it's kind of a cheap shop, but people say, people say they like it. It's this idea that if, like, we can all live, if the world's perfect, but the, re- the requirement of the world being perfect is, like, locking, like, a certain number of trolled up in closets or something. It's one of those, like... Okay. Yeah, what's the cost what's for, the like, cost sort of, of world peace at the cost of this, right, this tiny this little... kind of, this, like, person unforgivable having... amount of... Yeah. Like, this small-scale but unforgivable, yeah. inhumane amount of suffering. Yeah. And it's, like, it's a very leftist way to view the world, I would say. This freedom that we enjoy, it's it's great for us, but it's not great for the people who are, at the, who are getting the short end of the stick. Right. And the only way to change that, I think... I don't think you can have a, have a situation where you come to the rescue of someone they're being abused by their husband, and then, but that's the exception to the rule. Like, we're, we live and we watch our own televisions, and we live in our own houses, and we don't talk to each other, but when there's something terrible going on, we're like, I'm right over there. I'm that's put, a great point. You can't, no. that does not happen. That's right. It's everything or nothing. Wow. You're either involved or you're not involved. There's no okay. such, like, call me in case of emergency. That's not how social relations fucking That's function. Right. That's just not it. Interesting. So would 
so on a practical note, like a place to start to, you know, be be a part of be a part of the solution rather than the problem of violence against women would be to just actually be involved in women's lives, to be present enough and make make friends and not just with people exactly where you are, but like more broadly because I feel like there may I don't know if there's a class difference. I have a feeling there is. There is, but it's subtle. Okay. I mean, I know, I knew there was a woman who lived here who was killed by her husband and he was incredibly controlling and it was, it was a murder-suicide. I mean, the only way that you can prevent something like that is to have such an integrated web of relation, of relationality that it's just, that there's just forces acting against that man being like that. Right, in a sense, it, the when it's really being prevented, it's like prevented so far upstream in a sense. Right. And you're going to, and you're going to pay, like pay, you're going to, you're going to have, you're not going to have the same amount of freedom. That's right. If you want that kind of protection. It really is. People will be in your business. There just are no solutions. We can't have this perfect world. We're all going about our business and all the bad guys get magically taken off to jail. That's not a thing. So there's a sense like the freedom grows as the bad guys grow. There's also like, the, the, this the space that we call our freedom is also the space where the where the tares can come up among the yes among the grain truly it's like truly okay and when people talk about you know Sinead O'Connor who died and she was famous because she ripped up a picture of the Pope in like 1992 when people weren't willing to have that conversation right uh-huh. this isn't about religion mm. every single situation where you don't have adequate safeguarding where you put right. adults who are non parental adults alone plenty of abuse occurs in the family. When you put other adults in contact with children mm-hmm. and you don't have adequate safeguarding, it doesn't matter if it's the Boy Scouts, it doesn't matter if it's this church, that church, it doesn't right. matter because right. abusers will go through incredible lengths yeah. to get in touch with the people they want to abuse. Right. Well, and it happened to Dworkin in public school, right? Like, it was her teacher, yes. right? Yes. Did it. And yes. plenty of it happens in schools, yeah. This is why I just, I'm just so frustrated when people are like, oh, we shouldn't worry about gender. Everybody can dress how they want, blah, blah, blah. It's like, if you believe that sex is real and that people are motivated, that men and women have, in the aggregate, different personalities and different concerns and different, different desires, then you can't have that and honor that and say, oh, we don't have to have any gender. Whatever. No. Like, again, that's just it's garbage language. Like, you cannot worry about, like, what it means to wear a skirt or wear pants. Like, fine. I mean, there are cultures where men wear skirts. Sure, whatever. Yeah. But you can't be like, oh, it doesn't matter if you're male or female. We shouldn't care. Like, that's no better solution than redoing the language. Yeah. It should go without saying that places, like, where women give birth, why those were female-only spaces. Like, what the function of that is. And why that went unquestioned for, like, a thousand million years. Yeah. It should be self-evident. And I feel like, and I feel like we can't even have the conversation in real world words anymore because we don't want to talk about trade-offs. I don't think people want to give up what it would take to get to a place where women aren't killed by their partners like this all the time. Because we have this liberty thing Mm -hmm. and we'd have to give a lot of that up to to, To really protect women, to really protect the vulnerable and well, protect people against bad men. You'd have to be right. so enmeshed to do that. The amount of social right. force that would be required. Right. To and because we're that. saying the state can't do that. We're not talking we're about state power. We're saying that the state can't and we social, don't want to live in the state where that we I don't social think we would, stigma and pressure would do it, not yeah. the state. Yeah. It's even like what you were saying about like, you know, redirect. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> take some of that energy. Yeah. 
we don't want to give up the things we would have to give up to get there. Right. We want to instead play these language games and, you know, make ourselves feel better about ourselves because we use preferred pronouns. That's what we want to do. Well, and I definitely think a piece of it would be, like, the reestablishment of, like, the extended family, not just the nuclear family. Well. Because the people who are not your immediate family but who are going to care most about you are not necessarily your neighbors. It's like, oh, your cousin and your second cousin, your aunt and your uncle. And your, it's those people who do have more of a stake than Joe Schmo off the street, you know. But right. we're all, because of a million reasons, cars and college and jobs, everyone's and scattered to the winds, yeah. right? Like, I assume your family's scattered everywhere. Mine's scattered all over the country. My husband's is scattered all over the country. <laughs> Hardly anyone lives near each other. And so, there you go. Like, then how do you... <laughs> How do you be up in each other's business, family-wise, to protect one another if all these social forces scatter you far apart? And it's hard to stay. The left is really obsessed with this idea of activism in the sense that you go find the people who need help, which is like again this illish thing, right? About like care, like services instead of care, like mm. work on the hotline, work volunteer at the rape crisis center, like go where the victim services are. Oh, and it's right. Like, actually, the illish idea would be the opposite. It'd be like consciously form support networks where you are with whoever those people are. Exactly. It's like the parish model, like yes. where the church is. Or it looks like, exactly this like is that. You, this is where you are, then be where you are, and help the people you're literally exactly. seeing and in contact with, exactly. rather than the sort of like missionary model of, I'm going to go. I'm going to go save those where the people. Are. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go save those people over there. Right. Right. Because, I mean, there really is no substitute I mean, I understand the temptation of, you know, online communities because affinity groups, that's great. But, like, we all know the dark side of that. Yeah. And um, also, it's just, like, your affinity group cannot bring you soup when you're ill. Like That's right. That's just <laughs> back to that. That's right. <laughs> make soup for your make soup for your friends. Exactly. No, it's, yeah. it's really, really basic. And yet we don't want to... No, there is no, like... Pulse in case of emergency, like social ties. Right. It's already got the tracks already have to be laid for that for the emergency thing to happen. Yeah. A person can't just leap across the void to a stranger and be like, "Help me." No. It's right. Be and a well, well worn track has to be there for the the intimacy has to be there for the for it to become apparent they need help. And yeah, and there is this temptation without depending on the people that you're near to and without seeing intimately the foibles of the people you're near to, you're never going to be able to, like, see past, like, overcome that natural resistance of, like, I don't, nobody wanted to believe that OJ was that person. Right. Nobody wanted to believe that. And so they just looked right past it. Yeah. Just like she describes in that other trial. Yeah. Oh, that man needed help. Like, they just look right through it. Because, because they don't want to see it. Because they don't want to see it. Yeah. I get that. So, on that cheerful note. Well, kudos and thanks to Dworkin and to Schlafly for helping us to see. So. Good feminism is defined in our podcast by (laughs) honoring reality, even if your truths don't match up. They're both genuine from reality, calling it what it is, types of things. They're not trying to play language games with you. That's right. They're trustworthy. That's the word. Even if they're saying different things not necessarily contradictory things you're saying different things they're trustworthy in saying them honest feminism (laughs) 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 until next time thanks for joining us everybody